So I don't have any, I don't have any like concrete questions. So I think we're just gonna have to flow with it, man. Okay. Um, this might be a little bit of a, you know, as we need devil spinning around, but um, let's just go for it and see what happens. Cool. So what have you noticed since you read the book? I've been trying to take, he's so practical. Like the way that he wrote this book is it's, you're able to kind of just take the information and use it right away. I found after like, I don't know, even just a couple uh, pages in, it was like, it was making sense. It's if you have like somewhat of a foundation for habits already, and you already recognize that like, you know, how things can kind of go south and you not kind of commit and follow through on your habits before you read the book. If it's something that you've already kind of played with, it, yeah. it comes quickly. I find like that the information is, is practical and um, the tips that he gives in the book uh, for maintaining good habits and for trying to eliminate bad habits, I found was really super helpful. Nice. Nice. So yeah, it's it's very cool. Um, so, wh what exactly about those tips do you think are were, were the easiest for you to just kind of adapt? Why and like why do you think they work for you? I need to understand things before I do them. Like, I need to like I need things to make sense. And he breaks he I can't just like walk into a blind. Um, and he breaks it down for creating a good habit, he has these four laws of behavior change. And then for breaking a bad habit, it's almost just like the opposite of that. So for creating a good habit, it's, um, you have the, the four stages of a, of the habit, a habit loop essentially, which is the cue, the craving, the response and the reward. And mm -hmm. That's kind of how a habit gets. That's how it all kind of starts. You see the thing, you have the craving, you you do the action to get the reward. So his four laws of behavior change line up with those four cue, craving, response, reward. It's cue, which is make it obvious. So make the make the cue obvious. Craving, uh, make it attractive. Um, response, make it easy. And reward, make it satisfying. And it's the inverse for breaking a bad habit. So make it invisible, um, make it unattractive, make it difficult, and make it unsatisfying for the reward. Mm -hmm. So I found that was helpful because you can, you can control your own environment. Outside of your own environment, that's a little bit more difficult. Like if you go, if you're someone who's like trying to give up a bad habit, let's say like drinking being at the bar probably is like the worst place to go, you know, but in your own house, you can like, you can kind of create your own little, your own little habitat to, uh, to create good habits and to break bad ones. And I already, you know, that already, like, that's already like, it's all right. It's almost like an obvious thing, but when you lay it out and you put it in concise terms, like he does, yeah. I think that's like, Oh, okay. I can see things. I can see that clearly. It's almost like you can't ignore that truth. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's been, he gets into talking about how you had like behavioral psychologists, like uh, I think uh, BF Skinner 
and uh and charles duhigg who uh wrote the book power of habit i think it's called yeah. talking about uh cue response reward so and then he talks about how cognitive psychology talks a lot about like mood and behavior and beliefs kind of impacting that habit loop of cue response reward so he added in that fourth that fourth uh the fourth part of that which is the cue craving response to reward because two people might see the same object and have totally different um may react totally different to it like if i you put two people in a room you put a pack of cigarettes there this is the analogy that he used like one person might think oh i'm gonna pick up that pack of cigarettes and light it and light a cigarette and the other person might see it and just be like whatever it's just a pack of cigarettes and and move on right um yeah that's interesting because i think like I think if you wanted to go into like pure behaviorism land, you could you could come up with like you know that experiment that was done, which was like um, <clears throat> some scientists put people in a room with like some kind of device that would shock them, that would give them an electric shock, and that's all they had in the room. Mm. And they let them sit in that room for so long that the patients got so bored that essentially every single one went over and shocked themselves. Just for something to happen. So they knew they knew they were going to get shocked when they they knew they knew they were going to get shocked and they did yeah. it anyway, right? Because yeah. they just wanted something to happen. Like, um, it's kind of funny. It kind of speaks to this thing about human beings, where like, um, we need things to happen. Like, we, like we just do. Like human beings do things, right? Mm. If we didn't do anything, we would we would not be alive. Like we would not have food, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so, we, yeah. So. Um, so it's interesting because I think, you know, in pure behaviorism land on some level, if you recreated that experiment with a pack of cigarettes, I think everyone would go eventually smoke cigarette just for a laugh, see what it's like. But, um, but that's a very interesting point. Um, I think those two things are tied together. So like when we see an object in the world, we don't really see an object. We see we almost get like this tactile sensation of first of all, what it would be like to grab an object. So for example, I'm looking at this, my fucking shaving cream. But if I, when I look at that object, I think about first, I can almost imagine what it's like to grab it, right? So we're constantly, like we're not even really looking at objects, we're looking at tools. And we see, we almost see instantly what it's like to hold it. And then what would you even do with that object, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it's interesting that he, he, he calls it craving. Um, and it represents kind of like the cognitive psychology side of things. So he's saying like our perception of that object would be different than another person's perception of that object. Yeah. So and I think, I think he's trying to avoid intellectualizing things like making it too complex and just being like, okay, there's certain things that in your, like when you go to read this book, you're probably going to read this book because you're trying to create good habits and avoid bad habits. So he, he takes a simplistic route with that. Um, like there, of course, like if things will, will play out different for each person because of essentially your story, like the story that you've been telling yourself for years, um, the story that society has been telling you, the, the things that you've adopted as yeah. your identity um, is going to have an effect on the habits that you have. Like if, if you go your mm -hmm. whole life saying, oh, I'm not good at math, then you're probably not going to be very good at math. And that doesn't mean that you couldn't get good at it. It just means that since you've been telling yourself it for so long, well, why would you try? 
And I think that goes for a lot of different things. It's, it's about, it's about the story and it's about, you know, your, how you're conditioned to think. So for those, for habits, for good or bad, your, your story is going to lead you towards a, that outcome. Interesting. Um, I actually agree with aspects of that and disagree with aspects of that. I agree with the idea that, um, in general, when it comes to when it comes to changing your behaviors, changing your habits, and ultimately changing your self identity, um, what you tell yourself really matters. If you tell yourself, um, I actually saw a post by Andrew Huberman recently about this, about stress actually, where it was basically like, I don't want to try and recreate exactly what he said, but it's essentially like if you believe that, you know, stress is is beneficial and will and will lead to uh, I don't know, improvements in strength or something long-term, then that's exactly what it's going to do. Um, but, but yeah, I think ha- adopting a growth mindset is, is huge for changing yourself. If you don't think you can change, you're not going to change. At the same time, though, I think sometimes the, narr- the narratives we tell ourselves about ourselves um, and I think we're, I think we're doing this all the time. I think they can play some influence in behavior change, but I think those two things are ultimately separate. Like, I think it's different, like growth mindset is a different thing than the, the narrative, you, like the autobiographical narrative that's kind of running along your consciousness as you live, if that makes sense. That's um, sense yeah. And I think we can actually act out behaviors that go against that narrative all the time and never really know why we did those behaviors. Um, there was a study done by people where uh, they were studying split brain patients. And this is kind of a complex thing to recreate and I'm probably gonna butcher it pretty bad, but essentially, um, So they were studying split brain patients and what they would do was cover one of their eyes, right? Because like your eyes correlate to different sides of your brain. And so there's, there was basically, I think like to recreate this in like a Ricky way here, but um, essentially what went down was that the patients whose eyes, so let's say their left eye correlated to their right, their right brain or whatever. And that was the narrative um, that, that was, that was the brain that was sensual. Mm. So that could actually like see senses and stuff and like parse out sensual detail that eye was covered. And so what would happen was these patients would sit down with, um, an eye patch on one eye and they, and a scientist would hold up a sign that would say something like stand up and walk across the room mm. and they would go do that, mm. but they would never see the sign. Or no, sorry, they, there wouldn't be an eye patch on their eye. They just wouldn't have, um, they wouldn't have direct access to that, to that part of their brain, if that mm. makes sense. So the only part of their brain they have access to is the narrative part of their brain. And so when scientists asked them, why did you do that? They would come up with a story and tell them why. But it would have nothing to do with the scientists telling them to go walk across the room. And so there was this, and this happened multiple times. So there was this kind of thing where it was like, human being like at least these human beings did things all the time not knowing why they were doing them 
and then coming up with false narratives to justify why they were doing them. Um, and I think it is interesting. And I think it's, you know, it's not just the case in split brain patients. I think human beings, like, um, I was, I was trying to, um, tell this to my friend last night, but I was doing a really bad job of it, but essentially like, you know, we're, we're kind of like trapped in, we're kind of like inside these biological vessels. And at any point in the day, these biological vessels can tell us something. Seemingly we have a pain in our ankle. My rib hurts, um, from sparring the other night. And that's kind of what I'm telling myself, but I don't know exactly what part of me exactly is sore. And I don't know what specific moment in the night hurt it, but I'm, I feel pain and I'm mapping a narrative onto it. And it's like, yeah, we map all these narratives onto things all the time, but we don't ever actually really know why we do something. If that makes uh, well, sense. I would argue that we do at times. And I think that's, it's really a subjective truth because you're the only one kind of involved. So it's, it's, it's easy to say that we don't know all the time, but I think that there's. Wait, sorry, can you say that again? You're, you're the only one that's involved? Involved, yeah. So if if something oh, happened to involved, yeah. so, so if something happened to you, then you're gonna perceive it, and you're not really involving anybody else around you in that. Especially when it comes to like biological things, like if you're sore, how did you get there? Telling yourself a story because we're constantly telling ourselves, we constantly have our own narrative, and that's kind of why he gets into the habit loop being um, like the cue craving response reward, almost happening constantly, just like a feedback loop, just just constantly going on. Um, but I, I don't know if this is tying into what you're talking about. I'm going to try and follow you down that path, but it's like, he talks about beliefs, uh, leading to behaviors and behaviors leading to beliefs. So there's different ways of kind of looking at it. So you could kind of have a belief and tell yourself that you are something and that you are going, that you, you have this specific identity and considering mm-hmm. that you had that specific identity, you are going to have this action and this behavior, or you could have to flip it on its head and be like okay, I'm doing this behavior. I'm, I am acting this way in the world, which is leading towards this identity. It's putting, it's, it's putting a vote towards the person I want to be or the, maybe the person you don't want to be if it's a bad behavior. Yeah. And I think he, I, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think James Clear, the author of the book, kind of says it, it might be more favorable to have behavior uh, before beliefs instead of beliefs impacting behavior because the more you do the behavior, the more you are putting a tally and having physical proof that you are actually, cause it's, it's all about proof, right? Because if you have a belief, you, if you're, if you have a belief that's not correct, then you're delusional. But if you are doing behaviors that are, that are then creating an identity, well, then you have somewhat of proof that you were doing something. Like if you're saying that I'm, I'm a healthy person, well then going to the gym five times a week is actually adding to that reality. But if you just say I'm a healthy person and you don't really do anything that really kind of correlates to a healthy lifestyle, mm-hmm. then you are kind of delusional. And that can go into any, and that happens a lot. And it's can go into any realm of your, of your existence and yeah. in shaping your identity. He talks a lot about when creating a new habit, as opposed to being outcome-based. So goal-oriented completely yeah. like, Oh, I want to be, th- I want to be this, or I want to do this. Um, he talks about, going with identity first so shaping your identity to thus have an impact leading to an outcome um so identity-based habits as opposed to outcome-based um 
or sorry, an, uh, an identity mindset as opposed to an outcome mindset, because really it's not about the goal you're trying to achieve. It's mm-hmm. about the, it's about the, the things that you do leading up to it. And then afterwards, because once the, the goal typically is really short lived, like once you actually get it, the moment you, you win the race or get the degree or, yeah. or anything that's really big and, and important in your life, you meet the girl or you, you, you find your partner, whatever it may be, that's can be short lived. The idea is to have the systems in place so that you can continue on, um, continue on essentially living that version of yourself, which is ultimately better for you and for the people around you. So focusing more on the system as opposed to the, to the goal, focusing more on the behaviors as opposed to the beliefs seems to be a bit of a mantra that he's pushing because goals are important because they give you clarity. They make things like, they make things stand out. Hey, I think he gives the example of like an Olympic athlete. Like if you're an Olympic athlete and the Olympics are coming up in six months and your friends ask you to go for a beer, you can say no because you're going to go try and compete in the Olympics in six months. You have a goal. But if you're always fixated on that goal, it can kind of, I don't know, it can kind of, it can kind of, first of all, be a bit too stressful. And also it can take away the attention from the system, which is going to ultimately have the outcome. So systems are going to lead to the outcome. Like you can plan all you want and think about what you want to be or what you want to do all day long. If you don't do anything and it's never going to happen. So it's practical to just do it as, as often as you can. And I think that can lead to a lot of clarity as well. I'm not saying to, and he's not saying either to, completely get rid of the goal goals goals have meaning but really focusing on the system seems to be an approach that has more efficacy yeah i actually completely agree with that and it's something that um we've talked about a lot before like i think in order to achieve i think um the like goals worth setting cannot be really achieved in, in one day anyway right um, like you can't get, go from the couch to a marathon in 72 hours. Like maybe some people can, but it's like, why would you do that? Like you're going to want, if it's your first time running a marathon, like you're going to want the proper amount of time to prepare for that. Right. And have systems in place for that entire time to get you there. So yeah, I completely, I like it's, that's a really powerful thing. And it's so useful to know, like, um, and I think the process of taking something, looking at something in the world that you want to achieve and then breaking that thing down into a series of habits or systems that you can implement every single day um, and stay consistent with yeah. um, is highly effective. I, I think even specifically like taking one thing you want to achieve and trying to break that down into one to three habits or processes that you can do pretty much every day. That's important. But to keep on the running analogy or the marathon analogy, I mean, if you are so focused on the goal of running a marathon, which we've all (laughs) fell into this trap before, is that, and you can kind of relate this to many different aspects in life, is that say you want to run a marathon, it's three months away. So you create a training regime and a diet to get you there and you do it. And you run the marathon and you finish it. Well, then a week after the marathon, you're not training as much. Why? Yeah. 
Well, because you, maybe you focus on the goal so much and not the systems. So then another week passes and you've created a new habit of not training. And then four months go by and now you're somewhat out of shape and you wouldn't be able to run a marathon again. So yes. I think the idea is not to win the game. It's to keep playing the game. And I'm, and I'm, I think I'm boring his, his brain for that one that, yeah, yeah you, you, it's not just about like achieving, achieving the goal. It's about continuing to continue to achieve, to achieve goals and continuing to be the person who can be sustainable in their pursuit because life's very yeah. long, <laughs> hopefully. Yes, yes, it is. Um, yeah, no, that, that to me um, brings up a number of tangents, like um, this idea that it's not about winning the game, it's about continuously playing the game across time. I think it's very important, um, but it's also very interesting because it, it brings in these kind of like moral implications. Like, for example, um, because it's not even just about achieving the goal. Like, let's say you run a marathon, just to stick with this analogy, and I don't know, like you're a complete asshole, like you're a complete asshole to the organizers. Um, and then you, and let's say you're like, you do something dickish, like you, you run for charity, but then you never actually donate the money to a charity. You just keep it for Bobby's brew fund, right? <laughs> <laughs> the Bobby brew fund organization. Like, let's say you do that. It's like, well, yeah, you could win the race, but like, how likely are you to be invited back next year? It's like, probably not that likely. Like, did anyone have fun with you running? Like, or does anyone just think you're an asshole? And then it's like in the ultimate game of life, are you winning or losing? Well, you could technically win the marathon, but be an asshole and I'll compete in every single aspect of it. And in my opinion, be losing the game of life because no one actually cares. Like at that point, like you winning the marathon is, is somewhat meaningless compared to, um, I don't know other things around like everything else surrounding the marathon. Um, so it, it brings in, in, in relation to habits, it, it kind of brings in the question of like, well, how, what habits are, are moral? <clears throat> Is there such a thing as a moral habit? Um, and how do you approach any game, whether mm. it's a marathon, any other type of athletics, mm. um, something non-athletic, like something in a creative domain? Are there well, kind of, um, yeah, go on. Well, I just think it's about, you know, fine. Okay. So if you, if you're trying to create new habits, I think your pursuit should try and like, you don't, you don't want to inflict pain or sorrow onto any other person or the environment. Uh, you want to limit um, exploitation, that kind of stuff like that. I mean, if your goal is to become rich and famous, well, then why? And it's, that's not a bad thing in itself to become rich and famous. It's not a bad thing to want that. But if, like what what's your what's your reason why you want to become rich and famous and what do you want to do once you're there and it's all about just essentially you know i think having finding your purpose and in that in that path to finding it you're going to fall on your face so many times that hopefully all the shallow things that you're pursuing will drift away one by one and the deeper more meaningful things which don't inflict pain or sorrow onto other people or the environment will come to the surface and make themselves present. And I think humans mostly are good people. So it should be 
um, evident once you actually start trying to pursue something that is right and just for yourself and for the people in your life, then it will, um, it, it will, it will just present itself in the way that will make it obvious. And if you're pursuing things that are shallow and that are not good for you or good for others, then, um, well, that's, that's something that those people are going to have to deal with in time anyway. Yeah. Yeah. True. Or, or not. Right. Or they just continually ignored until they die. Sure. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. It's a bad place. Um, where the bad folks go when they die, they don't go to heaven where the angels fly. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool, man. So, um, yeah, I kind of want to talk about identity more as well. So what we were talking about before, like, I don't, um, I don't want to make it seem like I disagree with anything in that book. Like, I completely agree with this idea that, um, you know, your identity, who you think you are and who you say you are and what you actually do with your time is massive. Um, and that that's actually, it, I think it's, I don't know if personally relevant is the right way to say it, but it's, it's I don't know, it's personally appealing to me. Like I, I tend to dislike being around people who talk about doing things and then never do them. I tend to, once I recognize that, just stop talking to those people because it's like, well, you're not actually what you say you are. And so therefore you're kind of, it's a fib, like you're fibbing yourself, Yeah. you know? And um, so, yeah. Um, but I think, I think that's very important. Um, uh, and I agree with that. The thing I was saying about, there's always kind of like a personal narrative we tell ourselves and there's always kind of like this personal justification we tell ourselves um, running parallel to the behaviors themselves. And those two things, uh, uh, it's almost like we can do, we can do things and um, be cued into actions to do things. And we can tell ourselves why we did those things, but we may never really know why. Like, I think that idea and the idea of identity itself are two separate ideas, right? Like, um, you can, I can get up first thing in the morning and drink black coffee, uh, and tell myself I'm a coffee drinker. Um, and that's true. It's putting in another rep as to why I'm a coffee drinker and why I love doing that, why I love drinking coffee. But I also, um, maybe this is a, maybe this is a bad analogy, but I also like, well, yeah, it, it is a bad analogy. But like trying to boil it down as to why, like 100%, this is why I get up in the morning and drink coffee. Why is that? Is it because I'm a coffee drinker? Or can you reframe that? Yeah, sorry. This is kind of, this is kind of a bad example of this. Um, but I'm saying like, so I get up every morning and the first thing I do is drink coffee, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um and so obviously i'm a coffee drinker and i have no problem saying that i mean that's definitely identifies that <laughs> right and i'm definitely like putting the reps in every morning i am sam it. and i drink coffee <laughs> i'm a coffee drinker guys okay um so so that's obviously true right 
Yeah. And that, that's an identity that's not going to change anytime soon. You would, I would have to be removed from coffee somehow in order for my identity to change. I would have to be physically uh, taken away from that. If I have the choice, I'm going to get up every single morning and make it. Now, why do I get up every single morning and make that choice? Is it because I'm a coffee drinker or is there something else going on? Well, coffee is a tricky one because it's actually, it's a drug, right? Caffeine is a drug, so it's yeah. an addictive side to it. That's, it's that's also a social I'm, That's kind of what I'm trying to say is like, there's so many aspects going on to these things. Like, it's not just, it's a literal relationship you have to another thing. Right? Yes. Like, it's a physical relationship I have to essentially a drug. Um but also a series of habits and like a, um, like a ritual type thing. Um, and so parsing out a why is not as simple as simply saying, I'm a coffee drinker, therefore I drink coffee. Like ultimately that is, that is true. Like that is still a true statement, but like trying to boil these behaviors back into just simply them being rooted in identity. Um, do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't think they're just rooted in identity. I don't think it's one or the other. It's not binary. Um, I think that we're complex and that there's there's different reasons why we pick up certain habits or why we associate certain identities with ourselves and why we have certain behaviors. I think that, yeah. you know, that's it's kind of, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of different ways of looking at it and approaching it. And I think when it comes mm-hmm. to, like, the idea of atomic habits, so really small changes you can make, day to day to have a large impact um, yeah. is kind of what this book is, is getting at. And I think that, you know, identity is a tricky thing because you have the identity that you perceive, like you are Sam Westcott to yourself and this is, this is who you are, but somebody who knows you might see that completely differently and be like, no, this is the Sam Westcott I know. And this is how I, this is his identity to me. So no matter what you do, you're always going to have a different identity from yourself and what other people think of you. And but what you do will ultimately impact that identity. I mean, if you're like, if you pick up chess this year and become an amazing chess player and you actually end up, you know, becoming world famous because of it, you will, your identity will be shaped around that as well. And so it's all about what you do and how you act in accordance to that is how people are going to view your identity. And then also it's going to tell you that too, because you're going to be confirming it yourself because you're going to be doing things on a daily basis. It's going to say, oh, I'm the guy who gets up at six o'clock every morning to write or to read or to do whatever. Like you, every time you do an act, you are putting a check or a vote, casting a vote for the person that you were to become. Um, yeah. And the person that, and, and habits have a lagging effect. So what you do today is not going to really affect you today for the most part, unless it's something harmful or something really drastic. Um, but what you do today and continue to do nearly every day for a year will have an effect. Like it makes right. it, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. And I think that brings it back into this idea of the, um, or it brings back the idea of, um, you know, it's not about winning a single game. Like for example, it's not about running a marathon. It's about becoming a runner. It's mm-hmm. not about writing a book. It's about becoming a novel. If that's what you want to do. And that's the thing. It's, it's finding out first. I think you have to find out first what you want. And sometimes that's so, can be so difficult for people. And it was really difficult well, I for wanna, me. I want to ask you like, because, so we were just talking about why it is we do certain behaviors. Yeah. But why do you think it is we choose certain identities in the first place? 
I like think it comes down to like, I think it comes down to environment at first. So, you know, when you're born, you don't really have set beliefs. You're just, a, you're just a baby. You're kind of like a clean slate. Obviously you have your genes, which can influence um, how you're going to, what you're going to look like and certain actions you're probably going to possess like certain physiological traits and psychological traits. But for, for the, for a large part of it, you were depending on the environment you grew up in your, your religion or your, your community or your region of the world is going to have an effect on that. But putting all that aside and just looking at like what really motivates you, what, like what feels like fun to you and, but yet yeah, feels like work to others. What do you have a natural advantage over? Um, I think to just like, you know, um, it's important to kind of, to kind of just try things, try things that you think are going to be beneficial for you. And then through trial and error, um, just working towards them, you'll, you'll kind of be able to create uh, a template. And then once you have a few things that you're comfortable with and like learning about, I feel like it's easier to kind of latch things onto it after that, because you have a starting point. Like if you, if you're playing guitar and you're pretty good at it, you probably have pretty good finger dexterity and uh, you're probably able to focus for long amounts of time. Well, maybe that means you could do something else with those skills. Like maybe you could be a machinist, like maybe you could be an electrician, um, you know, uh, maybe you have that mindset you could, or maybe you're somebody who likes to build. Uh, so you, uh, like even like on a small scale, like just, you know, doing origami or something, well then maybe something in the engineering realm could be more of your, like your route. It's just so different for each individual, but I think you'll just, you just come up with it along the way. And instead of doing like, like he makes the analogy of like your you know, you're, you're kind of born with your genetics. It's going to determine your height in a lot of ways. Um, mm -hmm. And if you were, if you're seven foot tall, you're probably more likely to be able to dunk a basketball than somebody who's five, four. And maybe your goal as a five, someone who's five, four, shouldn't be to dunk a basketball, but maybe to, to be able to be, have, you know, great hand eye coordination for dribbling the ball and being able to pass it. Like you just kind of pick your, pick your strengths. You know what I mean? Which are Who's that short dude back? Well, this is, I don't know anything about basketball, but Remember there was like one short dude in the NBA, like this is too general to really even talk about. But <laughs> there's a few, there's a few short people. There's but, a few short people. Yeah, but there, there's and like when we say shorts are like five eleven. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know. you look at them and they're like, oh man, that guy looks tiny. But um, yeah, usually the point guards are are shorter than the you know, the power forwards and centers and whatnot. But uh, yeah, no, I mean like I. I guess kind of getting back to like more simplistic, what habits do you want to put into your life and which ones do you want to eliminate? It, that's what more of this book is about. It's like, which ones do you want in your life and which ones do you not want? Um, because people are having a lot of trouble with this because dopamine comes into play with it as well. Like you, <clears throat> you th think you want something immediately because we're very, we're, we're, we're a species that just thrives off immediate gratification because for our majority of our existence for 99%, more than 99% of our existence, immediate gratification is good. Like it was really handy, but in modern society, it's not, we, it takes time for everything. You work for a week, two weeks, you get paid. You work one day, you're getting paid 14 days later. Um, you study for four years, you get a degree. You know what I mean? You, you work out. Uh, for a year, you get fit. Like things don't happen overnight, and I think that understanding that, and, and which is completely, it's obvious in our in the current society that we live in, that things have a lagging effect. And 
in order to have a good outcome, you have to focus on doing the small steps daily. And they're not always going to be enjoyable, but the enjoyment comes from knowing that you're able to kind of push through adversity and push through, you know, temptation. Uh, and in time that has, I think, like immense benefits to mind and body and uh, society at large. Because if we all kind of just, you know, step, step back from the immediate, immediately gratifying acts, then maybe we could, uh, you know, find ourselves in a better position globally than we are right now. Yeah, no doubt. And it, I think it's also like when it, when you, when you use those analogies, like, you know, going to school for four years to get a degree and like um, working out for a year to get fit. It's like, it's also a measure I think of how much we want to become the thing that we want to actually become right at a certain point. It's like, and how consistent can you be with it? And what systems do you have in place? Like, there's really a lot of different variables because I think you could you could really, really want something. Like you could, let's say you could really, really want a uh, bachelor's degree in a certain area and then just not have the systems in place to study properly or take care of yourself. Maybe there's a lot of things going on mm-hmm. and you will ultimately fail, right? If you fail to execute on a daily level, the systems or the habits that are gonna take you to that degree, you're losing the game, right? And you could at any point, hypothetically drop out. Um, I do wanna come back really quickly to identity because um, there's, a, there's, there's a point he makes in that book about, you know, you can innovate essentially by being yourself um, and by finding, you can innovate by finding something new. And I think this is interesting because I think it actually relates to identity itself and choosing the kind of identity you want, and then therefore choosing the kind of habits and behaviors you want on a daily basis. So for example, um, and I think this is more directly applicable to things like uh, creativity and the arts and also entrepreneurship, but it's probably also applicable to other things as well. But for example, like, so let me, I'll just, I'll just state his idea and please correct me if I'm wrong because it's been a while since I've read this, but I think it's something like you can create a novel thing um, and by definition, if it's novel and unique in the world, um, it's, it's not necessarily second best to anything. In fact, it might actually be the best that thing because it's also the only version of that thing we have Mm. and if you can in entrepreneurship or in business or whatever like if you can market that if you can find your audience with that thing well you're winning right by definition if it's if it's something that's not too far left field uh just like because you can have a novel you can have a novel idea and a novel um Something that's like really like just essentially not expressed in society, but it can mm-hmm. be it can be too far out, even if it's a good idea to <clears throat> gather attention. So yeah, if you do have the if you do have the demographic that's into it into it and it is unique, then for sure, yeah, I don't see why it wouldn't be successful as long as you put the work in towards it. Yeah, it kind of I could go on a really long sorry, before I say this, is the back is the noise in the background like can you hear that? I don't find it that bad. You don't find it that bad? Okay. No. Um 
I could go on a whole thing about this idea of competition. Um, maybe, maybe I'll lay this out really, really quickly and we'll come back to identity. Okay, let me pour my coffee first. Okay. This idea of competition. Now, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to. I'm not going to um, articulate this as a as an argument or anything. I could be very wrong about this. It's almost like a something I've been toying with in my head <clears throat> in my head recently. And uh, I'd like to get your take on it. But I I want us to. I'm I'm saying this in relation to what we were just talking about with um, creating novel things, novel ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as competition goes, people, you know, people kind of look at it as, a, as like a, uh, if two people are competing in a field, let's say, if one person wins, they've taken something from the other person, right? So it's almost like one person gets a plus, right? One person wins, one person comes out on top, they get like a plus one, mm-hmm. but there's a finite number of things. So in order for that person to get a plus one, the person they just beat got a negative one. Mm-hmm. Now... I think that's, I don't think that's the right way of looking at it, of looking, of viewing competition. I don't think that's what happens in the real world. I think it's something more like this. Human beings, every single human being alive is completely unique. Every single human being alive has a unique perspective on what we view as the external world. Although our separation from the external world is in fact very small like my separation between myself and this glass jar um, is non-existent when I grab the glass jar, right? On a physical level, now I'm, on some level, I'm like becoming my environment. And when we talk about this in habits, like we are our environment, we act act out what what is cute, what is in our environment cueing us all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so the relationship we have between ourselves, what we view as ourselves and the external physical world around us can be pretty small at any given time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but we all have these very, very unique perspectives on the external world. So a glass jar filled with coffee first thing in the morning for me, is a slightly different thing for me than it is for you, than it is for um, anyone else, right? Sure. And so if we're competing, I'm literally viewing the environment in which we are competing in, in a different way than you are. Mm-hmm. To an extent, yeah. So, there's definitely like there's definitely like social cues that will align our perception of the competition. Like if you're in the Super Bowl on like this coming week, and you're going against the other team, yeah. um, you have you have uh, uh, essentially a, a, you know millions of people and television. Uh, media kind of portraying it in a certain way so your way you're perceiving it yes it will be different it's going to be nuanced compared to each and every person on the field every person in the stand in the stands but there are going to be a lot of similarities because there's a format and i think for a lot of competition in this world there's a a human competition like when it comes to like business or sports like there's a format and uh, it's hard to ignore that format you'd have to be you'd have to be kind of really out there, which probably wouldn't okay. serve you very well, well in, in that let state. Me, let, let me say, 
let, let's use that analogy of football because it's going to really um, cut to the chase here in, in terms of where I'm going. Okay. So we'll stay with this analogy of football. And I completely agree. You can ignore the format. And I think in some ways the format is actually what allows us to translate the abstract ideas like competition into narratives that can be consumed by essentially anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of football, I don't know anything about football, by the way. I've never, never played football. Um, I don't personally watch it. I just know that there are these things called quarterbacks. <laughs> and I know that Tom Brady is a quarterback, right? Not, not anymore. Not anymore? He's retired? Yeah, he retired. Yeah. Okay, so who's your favorite quarterback? I stopped watching football years ago. My favorite quarterback used to be Eli Manning. Okay, we'll, we'll go with this guy. So Eli Manning. Eli Manning, who did he play for? He played for the New York Giants. New York Giants, okay. So the New York Giants are looking for a quarterback. And this is a competition, right? They want the best quarterback to be their quarterback, obviously, right? It's an important role to play. Yeah. There's only a limited number of positions. Let's say you get five guys. I don't know what training camp. I don't I have no idea how this works, but let, let's just say it's at training camp and there's five potential quarterbacks. Eli Manning is one of them. So yeah, there's a limited number of, of uh, quarterback positions and someone's going to get the starting role. There's only one. And you could, you could view that if you give Eli Manning as Eli Manning taking a job away from four other people. But I don't think that's correct. And here's why I don't think it's correct. There is only one Eli Manning. Therefore, there is only one quarterback named Eli Manning. Therefore, Eli Manning views the position of quarterback in a way that is endemic to him. It is unlike the other way, the other, it is unlike, at least on some level, even if it's very minute and very specific to Eli, to Eli Manning, there is some aspect of the quarterback position um, that Eli Manning plays. Eli Manning's taken the quarterback position that those other four guys do not have. And so Eli Manning, if he wins the position as starting quarterback, he has won a position that only he could win. He has, in fact, he hasn't even really won a position. He's almost created a position. He's created the Eli Manning quarterback position. And therefore he either does a good job of being the quarterback for the New York Giants and being successful as a quarterback in that role or the Giants realize that, hey, this Eli Manning quarterback guy, let's try something else. And they give it to another guy with another unique and specific take. And so competition is almost like what I'm trying to say is like, we create roles for ourselves in the world through our functionality, through our interaction with all these objects and other human beings, we create specific and unique roles that only we can act out. And we either do a quality job of, of serving those roles or we don't Mm. right um there's only one justin trudeau prime minister the next prime minister that that comes in after justin trudeau will not try and do that job exactly as how justin trudeau did it right justin trudeau either did a quality job of what he was doing or a poor job depending on who you ask Mm. and the next person who comes in will inevitably do things that are similar to justin trudeau Mm -hmm. even though they're in the same job Mm-hmm. But even though they're in the same job, do some do things that are wildly different, right? Yeah. So competition is not necessarily like I have a thing that I that I have and you don't have it, so therefore I stole it from you. It's more like I created something, and that's just what it is. Can I interject? Yeah. So when you're you're talking about elite elite athletes and people who are at the top of the political uh, form. And these people have, so just to stay on with habits, um, these people have practiced their craft 
for years for like Justin Trudeau, whether you like him or not, has been, this has been his world for a long time. Eli Manning, Peyton Manning, you know, Tom Brady, all these superstar quarterbacks. Yes, they probably have God-given talent, but they've worked on that, you know, habitually for years to become who they are. And there are certain foundational skills that these people have, politicians who are at the forefront and the quarterbacks who are superstars in the league, that they're, it's a tight, that's a tight community. These people who are the best of the best in the world at a certain thing, they all have a certain set of underlying skills. They all can throw the ball. You know what I mean? They all can make plays. They all can do things that for you and I and for the average Joe is just way outside of our zone and our, yeah. and our realm of possibility. So they've already perfected all that. So now they have the time freed up because just to, this is a bit of a tangent, but habits were created or habits conserve energy. So like when we talk about habits, James Clear gets into this and I find this extremely interesting is that like if working out isn't a habit, no, because you're consciously involved in it getting your shoes tied and getting your gym bag on your shoulder and walking out the door would be more of the habit. It's the initial steps you take. It's the automatic process. It's the thing you do so many times that the behavior is no longer so much of a conscious behavior. It's more of a, a subconscious behavior. That's a habit. So what Eli Manning is doing and what all these other quarterbacks are doing is that they've took things that were, that are not habitual by nature, that are not automatic, that are under our conscious control and they make them, just kind of play out on their own. They're not even thinking about doing all those little things. They're focused on what makes them special and the little nuances. So no, there is no other Eli Manning that can fill that position, of course, but there is five other guys in that division who, if they get the position, they got a salary, they got fame, they got fortune, they got a coach, they got a team, they got personal trainers, they have all these benefits. And if you don't get it, and let's just say you go down to, the, to a league below and then you get injured, and then you find yourself working at the Home Depot in your local community, <laughs> you know, and you end up making your life turning into something which is nowhere near being the star quarterback of a, of a franchise, uh, then, you know, there's different ways of framing competition. And what's interesting about competition is that competition is way less common than, uh, you know, uh, symbiotic relationships in nature. So in nature, Things are always working together. Like we, like the, it's so complex the way that you know, like just our natural world forms. It's all through uh, essentially just like partnership between plants and animals. And if you look at competition, pardon, aren't you just personifying the world now, though? Yeah, but I'm personifying the world because we're part of it, and like that's how we 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 are we are literally. That's how you perceive the world. That's how I perceive the world is by seeing the connections of how things work together as opposed to competition? Um, no, sorry. You said like, I, I forget exactly what you said, but he was kind of like, um, you, 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 are perce- you are perceiving the world in a particular way because you are a human being with a human consciousness. And so therefore you're personifying everything you see. Yeah. You talk about these symbiotic relationships yeah. and how there's more, that's more common than competition, yeah. et cetera. But you're kind of like at this point, you're personifying what you perceive. Isn't that the same thing that we're we're both doing when we have a conversation? Like when you when you see how quarterbacks, you know, go for a certain role, and how you see no, competition because, perceiving it as well. No, what I mean when I say personification is like you're taking aspects of what it is to be a person, yeah. and attributing those to non non human things. Actually, I'm trying to do the opposite when I'm talking about. Uh, uh, the symbiotic relationships as opposed to competition, because when we, 
view okay. comp competition is almost like it's a man-made idea because you can have competition for food sources in nature, of course. Like with animals, you're going to have a certain amount of finite food that animals are going to need and they're going to fight over it. That would be a form of maybe using the word competition in nature. Um, but in reality, it's also still a form of, 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 of symbiotic relationship because when the animal eats the other animal, kills the other animal, it makes room for more life and more growth. So it's really, really? A, I, don't, I wouldn't say I'm personifying it, so to speak. I think I'm trying to look at it in a view that's actually universal for life. Like we, we really do work together more than we work apart and compete. Yes. Yeah. Um, although I don't know how much that is true of, of, human, of human beings in general. Um, I think it depends on our personalities. This is something I wanted to, to touch on when we were talking about, you know, setting up genetics and stuff. And uh, yeah, like seven foot, talking about genetics, like a seven foot guy is going to have an easier time dunking a basketball than a five foot seven guy. But I think the same is true for our personalities. Like uh, someone high in openness to new experience, which is a personality trait, is going to have an easier time at college, I would imagine. Um, than someone relatively low in openness to new experience. Someone high in conscientiousness is going to have an easier time while well, seeing anything through, potentially, than someone low in conscientiousness. Um, and therefore, also, someone low in agreeableness, well, he might just go out and compete with fucking everything he sees. Um, so it really comes down to the individual and the individual's personality, I think, when it comes to competition specifically. Um, some guys like to compete. And I'm, I'm saying the word guys, but I mean like human beings, like some human beings just like to compete. They're genetically wired that way. That's their personality. That's how they perceive the world. Um, and that's what they're going to do. So I think it depends, right? Like I, I myself- I'm just, I'm just kind of confused on what you're saying and I agree like, with like, it. Yeah, I'm just kind of confused on like what, like how you view competition and like what, like how we got to that, like, um, kind of this topic of okay here's, yeah so I, I i at the very beginning of that uh tangent i made a promise to you i promised that we i would tie it back into identity here's why i did that um so if we if we take that idea of there's only one eli manning and then therefore if eli manning gets the, the job with the uh, new york giants as the quarterback there's only one eli manning as quarterback position right He's kind of created a job for himself. I know there's only one limited quarterback position that multiple guys are competing for, but <clears throat> if Eli Manning does something particular to him that only Eli Manning can do, and then puts an Eli Manning flavor on the quarterback position and it's given that role, then there's only one Eli Manning quarterback. Um, other guys might see, might try and identify the things that he does specifically, and then therefore try to model their own game after Eli Manning then they are just then influenced by Eli Manning. Um, so you look very confused. I wouldn't say confused. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm wondering where you're going with this. <laughs> okay. So the reason I say all this is remember like in the book, James Clare says you can, I, and I, I don't want to get it wrong, but it's something along the lines of you can win by being unique. Well, he so, says, he says um, good players, try to win the game that everyone else is playing great players create their own game which favors their talents yeah. and avoids their weaknesses boom excellent so in this analogy let's just come back to eli manning even though we're all playing the same game this mm. this analogy takes place in a very specific game 
winning the role of quarterback for the New York Giants, mm-hmm. right? That's a very limited number of people competing in this role. Yeah. Um, Eli Manning, if he does something unique to him to get himself the job as quarterback, yeah, um, he's essentially done that. Like he's essentially drawn upon some aspect yeah. of himself that only he has access to, yeah. right? Yeah. And so therefore he's not taking jobs away from other people. It's just that he's created a job for himself using unique sure. skills that he possesses. Sure. Yeah. If we turn this outwards away from this analogy and into the world of, well, whatever you want to do with it, mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's important to think about this in relationship to what do you, what habits do you actually want to implement on a daily level? The mm-hmm. reason why I say that is because like, what unique traits do you possess as a human being? What is your personality? What personality traits are you highest in? What are you lowest in? What should you avoid? What domain should you enter into? And then once you're in those domains, um, how can you actually combine things in a way that no one else is combining them? Okay. I see where you're saying. I see where you're coming from. I kind of thought that's where you're going with it, but I think it's almost jumping at too many steps ahead. That's a, that's, there's nothing false what you're saying. I think it's true. But at the same time, I think... There's a, well, Why do you think I'm jumping too because, so because so because of like the things that are gonna you're gonna put together and create a nuanced approach and have something that's going to be kind of um, essentially creating your own game to favor your strengths and to and to uh, avoid your weaknesses essentially instead of just playing the game that everyone else is playing. But first off, you do have to play the game. Like first off, you got to get good at a thing. And like there's so many there's so many bad habits that are easy to you know kind of have in your life and good habits that are probably gonna be beneficial for you in the future. And to find mm-hmm. something that's good, like, and from my own experience, like, to find a niche for me, like, what the combination of things that work well for me um, took me to do a bunch of different things. Like, I had to work on three or four different aspects of my life that are kind of like fundamentals um, yeah. and then work on those, like, actually use the behavior, like, on a day-to-day basis, you know, do the act to kind of get closer to finding out how to, because you can't put a bunch of unique skills together if you don't have a whole lot of skills to begin with. So, and skills are not something that's just like inherent. So we need to, we, some people do have skills that they're born with and can kind of just like work on that. But at the same time, a lot of people, I think the majority of people, if they want to do something that's really cool and exciting and something that may be a goal in the future, you need to have mm-hmm. some foundations. Like you, you can't think about beating Eli Manning if you, if you never really played a whole lot of football, you never really practiced. You gotta, and first of all, you got to work out. You got to eat healthy. You got to then start throwing around a football. You got to then have social relationships with your team to create, you know, like, a good quarterback is the captain of a team. So, you know, those, yeah. those aspects, I think first it comes down to, you know, getting skills in, in things that you, th- that you find enjoyment in that you're naturally good at, and then building upon that to get to the diverse realm of putting things together and creating a, um, uh, to use an analogy, you're doing a writing course coming up. Like you didn't just come up with a writing course as soon as you started to learn how to write, like you learned how to write first. You learned about cognitive behavioral science. You learned about, all this stuff and you're putting it together because you took the time to learn about those things. And now you can use those things to form a new and interesting product. If you just came off the street and came up with an idea, it's most likely not going to be, you're not going to have the work ethic to do it first of all. And also you're not going to have a hell of a lot of different skills to pull upon. I completely agree. Um, I completely agree with that. It does take a long time to put skills together. And I, um, especially if you're talking about skills within multiple domains. Mm-hmm. And the course I can say is a good analogy because I think in my humble opinion, I do try and combine ideas from, from different fields. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's, 
I, I think it's still something that's worth talking about because um, I think like if you want to be innovative in a particular field, um, if you want, so I think the idea of being like innovative and being the best are intrinsically like kind of tied together. And so like, if you're doing something to be the best you could possibly be at that thing, like if you're learning guitar with the intention of playing guitar for the rest of your life, even if it's just a side hobby and being the best guitar player that you can be, mm -hmm. um, then at some point along the line, you're gonna have to think about things that you do with the guitar in your hands that no one else really does. If that's um, your, yeah, if you want to be the best at something, then for sure. I don't really have a whole lot to say on that because I've never really tried to be the best at anything. Like, that's just not my, the way my brain works. I'm not like, I want to be the best at X. I'm not, I'm not saying you want to be the best in comparison to other people because as I've just said in the analogy of Eli Manning and stuff, that's not how I view competition anyway. Hmm. But what I'm saying is like, if you're going to do something, you're going to probably do it with your full intention, right? Like you're probably going to do it with, like with all the capacity you have allotted to that thing, that's what you're going to try and give that thing, right? Well, that's the, that's the whole point of the book is that like a lot of the time people don't like, and, and when you even say like, are you giving your full, you know, full commitment to something? It's like, well, that's what habits are for. It's showing you that you are giving the full commitment. So it's like, when someone really wants to do something or achieve something, do they put their full effort into it? I think very rarely people put a full effort into anything. Um, and it's really admirable when they do, because we know how difficult it is. Like when we see somebody do something really cool and we really appreciate the product they've created, whether it be a book or, or they're an athlete and they've had an amazing game, we appreciate, even if it's on a subconscious level, the work that went in beforehand. And that's the, that's the key to it is that like the full effort I don't think is given a lot of the time. And that's why, habits are so important because it does show that you are giving an effort a good heartfelt effort and the amount of effort you want to put in is totally up to you like it's up to the individual um so it's uh it's kind of comes down to how much effort do you want to put in and for what outcome and if there's a specific outcome how much effort is required to have that to get that outcome and kind of building from there yeah cool <clears throat> Um, let me just take a look at the at the uh, at the list we have here. Is there anything you you want to talk about? Anything you're curious about? Anything? Um, yeah, there is a lot of things. This book was just like, okay, so. I think we actually covered everything. Well, there's, there's actually, I guess, something here we could go into, but what is, is there anything you want to you talk about? Um, yeah, there's something interesting I want to talk about, actually. Um, and it's about um, novelty. So craving something that's new for you, like what uh, Machiavelli has, has, pardon me? Creating something that's new? Or maybe not just creating something new, but just having something new in your life. Like 
just having mm-hmm. novelty. And Machiavelli has That's a quote amazing. where it's like, um, uh, man craves no- novelty, whether he's in a good position or a bad position, just this, just the same. Um, like we, um, that's not the direct quote, but like, you know, we, we do crave novelty to such an extent that even if we're in, even if we're living a, you know, quote unquote, perfect life, um, we're still craving something that's nuanced. And uh, same goes if you're in a bad position. And I think being aware of that, that our brains kind of do work like that. We do kind of like, if we're, if we're, if we're trying to achieve a goal or have a good system in place, what ends up happening is that you plateau a lot. Like if you just learn how to play guitar and you can't hold it, you can't do a G chord and your fingers are hurting and your wrist is cramping. Um, you're determined to get that G chord. And maybe then you learn a C chord and a D chord and you're all of a sudden you can play, you can strum a few chords in guitar. You then hit a plateau, right? And then it's your choice. If you want to level up and keep getting better at guitar, you then have to kind of suffer, not suffer, but you have to kind of work through the boredom because it's not all about failure. And he gets into this in the book, which I found was really important to understand is that when you're trying to achieve something, there's going to be a lot of boredom that can come along with it because you're repeatedly doing tasks and trying to get better at it. And if you can get past that boredom or work through the boredom to the point where you can still find pleasure and be satisfied at the end of the, at the end of the uh, routine, then you're more likely to stick with it. And if you're more like, likely to stick with it, you're more likely to succeed at it. And I think just like understanding that boredom plays a huge role in giving up just as much as failure does. Cause failure at least tells you something and it gives you something to work towards again. Cause you failed at it. You're like, okay, well, if I failed at it this time. I'm going to do it right the next time. But if you're bored and you're like going in, I mean, I think we've all had experiences of that. Like whether you're studying a new topic or you're learning an instrument or you're working out, going to the gym all the time and doing the same reps over and over again, even if you're doing multiple different things every day, if you're working out five days a week and you're doing five different body parts each day, there's still moments where you're like, you know, it's not exhilarating. And to give up is very easy at that point. And I think that's what separates professionals from amateurs is that they stick through the boredom and work through the boredom. Like professional boxers aren't always winning a title belt and being in front of the crowd, you know, smiling. They're in the gym, you know, four hours a day punching a heavy bag. Like it's, it's, that's a, yeah. I think a good point to remember when you're in your, when you're in your little room trying to achieve a goal and you're bored out of your mind. If you work through that, that's a, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a vote for, I can, I can work through adversity and it's harder these days than I think it was in the past because of things like social media and cell phones and all the distractions that we have that increased dopamine in the immediate, like the, the things that kind of tap into our, our primitive emotions are right there in front of us. So we have an excuse to get away from something that's kind of like long in the tooth and get something that's like really satisfying in the immediate. Yeah, I think, I think in some ways, um, failure itself is actually the antithesis, antithesis of boredom. Um, and what I mean by that is like, if I go to learn a new skill and I fail, um, I, I can if I want to, and maybe people are different, but I can become curious in why I failed. Mm-hmm. If I fail to execute, um, I don't know, a takedown in jiu-jitsu or something, a, a specific takedown, if I fail to execute a double leg takedown, I can go learn why I, why I failed to do that. And in learning why I failed to do that, I will be exposed to new pieces of information that clearly I hadn't had before. And so it's almost like failure it can be a gateway into harnessing um, curiosity, right? If I, you fail, yeah, I totally if agree. If you fail at guitar, 
you don't necessarily at a specific thing on guitar you don't necessarily know why you feel about that thing right because there's some pocket of information that you're missing mm -hmm. and so if you can be curious if you can become curious in that pocket of information that you're missing mm -hmm. continuously across time mm -hmm. you will ultimately gain new skills and become better at that thing i think the thing with boredom is that, is that it actually boredom is more likely i think uh, to manifest itself when you are continuously winning at a particular thing than when you're failing, right? Because if you are continuously winning, then the game has become too predictable. You know, you know what you're doing right, and you know that when you do those things right, you're going to win or do it correctly, and then therefore there's not enough, you're not curious anymore in the process. There's no mystery to the process. You, you plug in, you do your thing, you get the job done, it's done did a good job you go home right so i think i think curiosity itself can be like heart continuously harnessing curiosity if you can do that within a particular domain you can evade boredom um and then therefore just continuously learn across time yeah i i, I it's all hypothetical for me that last part uh, I, I agree what you're saying but it's hypothetical because i mean like when you say continuously winning at something like if you kind of correlate that to a, a game or like um something in my career like i haven't that, that's not something I've experienced where it's like, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean that literally. Like, I mean, like winning in the sense of like doing the habit, like you say, yes. you know, if you can go to the gym, right. Like you're going to the gym five days a week mm -hmm. now. Right. Yes. So at some point on one of those gym days, let's say you're doing, let's say you're doing leggies. You get, let's say you do like, I don't know, this is an example, but let's say you have a specific habit on leg day and you do five exercises on leg day. Yeah. Let's say like within a certain period of time, you get really good at leg day mm -hmm. and it's no longer really like maybe. Some wish. Challenging. Yeah. Maybe some aspects are challenging, but maybe yeah. it's, it's pretty, you, you have the routine down pat, nothing about it. Sure. Excites you. There's nothing mysterious about it. You know yeah. that if you go in and plug in these five exercises, leg day is done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. you do that consistently you get really good at it and there's nothing about it that's challenging or new or causing you to reevaluate reevaluate your approach to leg day in general yeah um you could potentially become bored so it's how do you how do you um stimulate okay. curiosity yeah. in that specific I, thing right? I, yeah i want to just to add to that it's like that's true but the thing that I found is beautiful because I've always found ways to avoid the boredom if I want to stick to something. So for working out, um, I would just find a really intense workout because working out for me has always been fun. Yeah. So like, I'll just do something that's really high energy, but at the same time, that high energy workout or that, like if I go in, I'm going to do legs, but I'm bored doing legs. So instead I'm going to focus on biceps because you can, you know, you can see your bicep growth and you're maybe more like, that's just something you're kind of like, it's like a superficial thing in your brain or something. But if you choose to stick with the legs and work through the boredom, your results are going to be better. And they're going to actually attribute to the goal that you had in mind in the first place. So that's more what I've gained from this book is that like, yeah, you do want to do another thing. And even if the other thing is still good for you, like, even if it's just like, um, it just has more, 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 um, more flavor, more, more color, more things that are drawing you to it. And the boredom can kind of dissipate. Sure. Yeah. That's not always a bad thing, but I think mm -hmm. that over a long period of time can be detrimental to the goals that you have. So you're reminding yourself of your, of your, the system and the goal and then sticking with it through the boredom, even though there is, there is options to move away from the boredom and find something else, which is still good is, uh, is helpful. It's like theory and guitar. So if you want to learn guitar theory, but then you're like, ah, fuck it. I'm so tired of learning theory. I'm just going to, uh, 
I'm just going to like learn this really sick song and then kind of play off of that or like learn a scattered scale or whatever. And just kind of play off of that. You're still learning how to play guitar. You're still becoming a better guitar player, but you're not, yeah. you're not becoming better at theory. Um, I know I'm talking to a musician about guitar theory. You probably can find holes in my, in my analogy, but I think it stands in the fact that like, just because you want to do better at a thing, there is different realms and different ways to find, to get better at it, but you're going to then have holes in your, in your, um, in your approach at the end of the day. Yeah. I think it's very funny. Where I don't know if this is exactly what, what we're talking about, but human perception is so it's a narrow band. So even within a particular field, it's, it's almost similar to what I was saying with Eli. Um, but on guitar, let's say like when you see a guitar, your perception to you can seem very wide. Um, so for example, for a long time, or not relatively not that long, but uh, for some amount of time, I was really into jazz guitar. And so the world of jazz guitar seemed massive to me, right? Like mm -hmm. there was a lot of jazz guitar players and there was a lot of fucking really good guys and, and girls. And, um, and jazz itself seemed like a massive world. But in reality, jazz was like such a narrow band of music in general, mm -hmm. right? And so it wasn't even just like, jazz it was like a specific band within jazz it was jazz guitar and then it was like particular things within jazz guitar that i was interested in and so my band of attention and my band of consciousness my band of whatever my uh discipline on guitar was relatively very very narrow and so for you it's inevitably going to be similar like um no matter what your interests are on, in a particular thing, they are going to be relatively narrow compared to all, all of the information that could be available if you tried to go explore it. That's right? true. And it's relative. And so it's true. And it's relative to your educational growth. So like, yes, yeah. it's, it's narrow, but it's not fixed and it's never going to be all encompassing. You're not going to be enlightened, like, but you can take that narrow, that narrow vision. Let's just say you just learn a new, a new, a new hobby by the time you're four weeks in and you've been practicing every day, your vision's a little wider. Now, if you scale out, it still looks really narrow. But in the in your in your field of view, it is going to be each time you do it, each time you learn more information, you're going to be, you know, widening yeah. that. I do, I do want to come back to something though, because we were we were talking about how combining ideas. Uh, we were using the idea of like combining things in novel ways to create a novel product, to create mm -hmm. a unique product to you. Mm -hmm. And like we were talking about how, okay, like if you were going to do that, it would take a long time because you need to develop skills in multiple domains that takes a long time. And then you need to kind of like go through an experimental phase where you're just trying a bunch of things out. Well, I, I was going yeah, I, I, I was saying solely that, but it's, it, I, think, I think for like trying to get to like a really high position in something, then yeah, because people are already, yeah. you know, people have already spent the time working at the minor things. They're already focused. They're focusing now on the, on that small band of excellence. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. I think all those things are very true. But I think if you can deduce that into a smaller process that you could implement at the beginning of a new thing mm -hmm. and just say, for example, let's just use the analogy of guitar. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So what are you interested in on guitar? Right. Yeah. I think you can actually use this process to go cultivate enough curiosity and enough, um, I, I, I guess, ultimately passion Mm. or interest in a particular topic to pursue that topic to its to 
to its hypothetical end. And so what do I mean by that? So what I mean is like, you could be a guitar player with no chops at all. Mm. You could be relatively new on guitar. Uh, you don't really know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But okay, so if, if I ask you though, what is it? What is it about guitar that you're interested in? Okay. You might give me two or three answers, and then we can we can we can approach this from a number of different ways. I could say, well, mm-hmm. what genres of music do you like? Mm-hmm. Let's say you let's say you say you like blues music and you like hip hop hip hop music, like both of those kinds of music. And I say, okay, how interesting would it be to choose one of those two options? So forget hip hop, Rob. We're going to go a deep dive into blues. Or forget blues, we're going to do a deep dive into hip hop. Okay. But then I say, how cool would it be, Rob, if we figure out a way of combining those two genres of music and learning both genres at the same time on guitar in a way that is unique to you? Well, I and think so that like well, blues and blues and hip hop is an interesting combination because they're actually like one is. I know. And I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, this is this is a this is a bad analogy. I don't I don't know what your interests are on guitar specifically, but of course. Um, let's say it's that. Like you can from the very beginning combine things, and right. Like if I was going to write a paper on topics that I have no idea about, hmm. so out of all the topics that I have no idea about. What are some topics that I might write about? Well, I don't know. Um, we were talking recently about climate change. That's something I want to learn more about. And then there's like there's all like a, maybe a potential list of them, right? Mm-hmm. But now I'm going to produce something. I'm going to write something. I'm not just going to take all this information and input it into me. I'm yeah. going to actually put something into the world. I'm going to create an essay or a short paper or something. Okay. What is that paper going to be about? Well, if you tell me that that paper that I'm allowed to combine two of those areas mm-hmm. into a, in, and find a, find a way of combining multiple areas um, of study into a way that interests me, I might be more curious and more passionate about writing that paper than I would be if I was limited to just one area. Yep. That's, that's kind of what I'm saying is like, yeah. we can, we can kind of use this process at the very beginning when we know nothing and our skills are, not developed mm-hmm. in order to kind of choose the paths paths with which we actually want to develop skills in. I yeah, and I think that also happens subconsciously as well. I mean, if you choose new habits to undertake, your your personality is going to affect and gravitate you towards certain things within that realm, no matter what. So that's why I think the unique aspect of of like that's why I like I think when it comes to what you're saying, I think is true. Um, I don't know if you need to. Uh, go too deep and even think about it because in reality it's going to express itself anyway like if you're if you have a certain personality and you start to do a, a specific habit like um like uh, writing is uh, if you use the analogy of writing um it's a very broad thing so when you go about your own way of writing it's going to come out it's going to it's going to be impacted by your influences first of all and it's also going to be impact, impacted by your personality and i think that that's going to end up inevitably creating somewhat of a unique product. And the more unique you are as an individual, the more unique experiences you had, or, you know, if you're just like a strange buy, you're going to be creating something that's going to be, uh, you know, novel and, uh, and uh, nuanced um, in time. And as, as, and as you continue to get better, your product's going to continue to get more specific as well. Your, the outcome is going to become more specific and it's going to be very, it's very, Eli Manning's the only one who could have that position. You know what I mean? Because it's, it is, what they made it it's it's what that's how the it's how you make it essentially 
Yeah, I, I can I I obviously agree with that, but I also think it's it's something you can consciously do. Like it's a conscious process that you can adapt, right? Mm-hmm. It's a concept you can do while you're journaling. Like mm-hmm. if you're because there's so many people who are are in this world and it's not that they're unskilled, mm-hmm. right? Here's another thing about habits and, and an identity. You can be highly skilled in a particular domain and be lost. Oh, 100%. Like how many, and I was going to go into something, but like how many great whatevers have you known to, to be also at the same time be in their own lives and their own perception of their lives be completely fucking lost? So it's actually very common. It's very common. So mm-hmm. like, I think like, you know, skill development does not necessarily correlate to life fulfillment. No. Like at, no, at a certain either. point, you kind of need to, I think at a certain point you need to carve out your own little, your own niche, like your own yeah. little look, like your own little fucking thing that you can do that no one else can do. Yeah. And I, I, it I might, agree. you know, it might be tied to something that is I, on the outside seems uh concrete and not very malleable at all mm-hmm. but to you and your particular interests it might be so in order I, to I, do I, that it takes a lot of trial and error i've literally got four exercise books here on my table and one of them is dedicated just to that it's just to putting together the ideas of just like journaling on how yeah. on just ideas i'm like because i might ask yeah. myself a question and think i believe something uh, yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, if I believe it, then write down, write down what you believe or write down what you think is true. And then if you, when you start to write down, sometimes you go, okay, hold on. It's like, I never really dissected this with a fine tooth comb before all of a sudden you're, I think that's what, I think that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom is being able to kind of, you can obtain as much knowledge as you want, but it's not super practical. And um, really, if I think Maybe it's effective in the industrial world, but maybe not as effective in like the understanding of the mind until you kind of be able to draw lines between things and understand that you really don't have, you don't really know, but you can uh, take the time to, to understand your own mind a little better. If you understand your own mind a little better, you can understand other people's. And then we can kind of have a little bit of like, you don't need to have live experience to kind of understand the situation and also to understand that you'll never fully understand it. Um, and you'll never, I'm never going to see it from your perspective completely, but if you share with me your perspective, I've now gained another layer onto my perspective and that can, that can kind of expand, you know, endlessly. I think that's what true enlightenment is, right? It's like being able to, you know, kind of see things from all angles in a way. And I don't know, I don't think that's possible, but I think it's something to be, you know. Yeah. I don't know. That's an interesting definition of enlightenment. I've never really, um, I don't know if that's a definition of enlightenment. That's just kind of how I see it. No, it's an interesting, it it is an interesting definition. Like that's, it's cool. Um, Sorry, I was going to go. Yeah, I think like journaling, I I think you're absolutely, you're right, by the way. And we can talk more about that, like other people's perspectives and stuff, how you will never know them. Mm -hmm. I saw an interesting statistic recently where, um, apparently even when it comes to people we feel like we know very well like our loved ones uh when we guess what it is they're thinking we are only right about 35 percent of the time <laughs> yeah especially if it's a loved one because then you're just like i mean you see them you well, see them at all different angles so you see them when their personality is 
all of a sudden you're like, who is this person? You know, like, this is not the person I thought it was. And all of a sudden your perspective is going to change. Right. And that's, that's ultimately the question we're trying to answer here when, when we're talking about habits and identity is who am I, mm-hmm. right? Who, who am I really? What do I want to be? How, how do I be that thing? Mm. Um, but uh, I think journaling is one of those habits that when we talk about something like it's not about winning the game, it's about playing the game continuously across time. Yeah. Um, and what could potentially be a habit for all of those games across time? Um, I think journaling is one of those things, at least for okay. me. Like, yeah, like I, in order for me to know anything about myself at all, I kind of have to write it down and begin writing. Um, well, you can see the holes pretty quickly in your logic or your logic like, yeah like, like oh I mean, this is what i believe this is how i think and you're like wait a minute like, well it's almost i think yeah we see the holes in our logic and um i mean we obviously see if you go down that pathway you can see how valuable your own thoughts are essentially all the time very true um how yeah how imagined and ultimately unreal they all are but um we also can kind of really actually see there's a record now of what we think like i think our brains are really good at thinking (laughs) right like Mm. they're really really good at thinking Mm. they think all the time automatically and oftentimes we're not aware of what we're thinking until we're thinking it right like we don't necessarily choose what to think we just kind of think and so writing things down and keeping a diary or a journal or a record of what you thought in the past Mm -hmm. um, can be highly beneficial because now it's not just in the present moment occurring in your mind. Yeah. These thoughts, they're out on paper and they're more seemingly ob- objective. And they're now, they're now actually words on a page, even though if you write in ink and you can't, you know, you can't go in and copy and paste and rearrange like you can in, on, when they're digital. Yeah. But these words and thoughts on a page are now something more akin to tools. Or building blocks that we can actually move around and if we can identify the holes in the logic, for example, and fill in those holes. Or we can write out the things that we're interested in and determine the intersections that we're really, really curious in and then go pursue those and then make a list of how of ways that we can actually pursue them. It's like it's essentially like self-management, self-governance, I think. It all comes back, at least for me, to to writing and to journaling and to mapping all this stuff out onto paper. Those are all valid reasons to journal. And one reason in particular that you didn't mention, maybe you did in in another way that I find is really important for me to journal is to avoid distractions. So like, for example, this morning I woke up and I had a really busy head. Like I was thinking a bunch of different thoughts and I was, I was, you know, kind of killing time until we did the podcast and I was craving distraction. I just wanted to tap out like, cause, and then, you know, we have such easy access to that through, you know, content online or just like through anything you really want to do. But I chose to write down instead about distraction. I wrote down essentially instead, if you are constantly, if you're have a busy mind, you're thinking about things a lot, you can use distraction to get away from that. But it's always going to go on though. Like if you don't actually confront your thoughts, they're always going to continue in the background. So once you sit down to confront them, I mean, writing is a good tool. This also communicating is a great tool as well. Like, um, I mean, talk therapy, essentially, you kind of express how you feel so you can kind of get it out there as opposed to 
internalizing it and, and kind of making it more complicated than it should be. Journaling yeah. is a great tool to kind of take what is going on in the background and bring it to the, the foreground and be like, this is, this is what's yeah. going on. And if it's something that you need to process, which it probably is, like if you're, if you're thinking of something that, that you need to process and then move on from and not even move on, but to understand. And then yeah. that's journaling is so important for that because you can then, you can then see it. And then when, even if you look back at it, you know, 10 days later and go, that was stupid. Well, it's only stupid now because you got it out there. That was just in your head for a long time. Or it, it was, it's, uh, it's confronting your delusions. And I think yeah, we all have them. <laughs> you're absolutely right. You're actually kind of uh, describing a, a process of cognitive behavioral uh-huh. therapy where um, in cognitive behavioral therapy, you have this triad of thought, emotions, and behaviors. You said again, triad all, of what? Thought, emotion, and behavior. Yeah. And they're all linked. Um, so a, a behavior can produce an emotion, can produce a thought. Um, a thought can produce an emotion, which produces a behavior. Um, but what you're describing specifically, I think, is is that like we have thoughts, and it can be foolish, they can be imagined, they can be hypothetical, they can be unreal. But inevitably, we kind of experience them as though they are real, and as though they're they are real events taking place right now. And we have a real legitimate emotional responses to them. And so this process of um, getting them out of your head onto paper, looking at them objectively, parsing out why exactly they're, they're false, can remove the emotional context from, from the thought. And you can look at the thought and once you realize that, hey, this is not actually true, um, you can take that understanding forwards into the present moment and step out of the uh, emotional baggage that that thought was giving you while it was still just a thought in your head. Yes. And I think you hit the nail on the head being saying that like it's emotional context that's related context that's related to the thought because you're not being rational when you're being emotional. And if you're having a thought and, uh, and experiencing it emotionally, typically you're kind of uh, influencing your, your ability to, to be rational and to be logical. So, and which is not a bad thing, it's human behavior to kind of have emotion tied to thoughts and to memories. But if you just take a step back and you write it down, your emotions are usually kind of short-lived. Like emotions aren't super long in the tooth. They're usually like immediate and you feel them. So when you sit down and write it and you're on a topic, like or on a thought that you've had, um, you had you, you've passed the emotional, uh, you've kind of dealt with the emotion that's tied to it. Now you're kind of tapping into the actual topic and you can view it from a, from a standpoint of being kind of being somewhat objective, at least more objective than you were 10 minutes ago. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think um, for the most part, emotions are short-lived, but there, are, I do think there are people in the world who experience kind of long-form bouts of emotion. Mm. You could call them. Like for example, people who experience serious depression and serious mm. anxiety. And so these tools for cognitive behavioral therapy, I don't want to like, get on a little throne as a doctor and kind of prescribe them to anyone, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that anyway. And I'm, I, I can't do that. I don't think, but I think, you know, these, this process we're describing is also beneficial to people who, you know, do experience more serious forms of negative emotion. Um, and uh, yeah, like there, there's a number of reasons why I say that, not just personal experience, but, just reading accounts of people who 
you know, were seriously depressed or seriously anxious and discovered cognitive behavioral therapy and got into it and kind of adopted that as a habit and now are more or less free of their anxiety and depression. I think it's a good form of treatment. For well, I think it's a, it's, I think it's an important topic to dissect because the more you talk to people, uh, the more you realize the amounts of anxiety and depression in your surrounding, like the anxiety and depression is so common, like, um, anxiety, depression, and suicide, unfortunately, like the richest nations in the world suffer the highest amounts of de- uh, anxiety, depression, and suicide. And yeah. it has something to do, I think maybe with, well, first of all, not communicating and not understanding our own minds. If you don't understand what's going on in your head and you're just in it, you're just strapped in and you're going for the ride that if you're a blissful, happy person by nature, that can be all right. You can live fly by the seat of your pants and that's okay. Some people can do that, but a lot of people can't. And I think that if you're just like, strapped in for the, the ride of emotions and you can't fully understand them or where they're coming from and kind of mm. how to deal with them because you're going to get them regardless. We're not, we're not robots. Um, but when you can kind of, yeah, dissect your own, your own opinions of yourself or of others and kind of see things uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a wider view, I think that that's, I mean, <clears throat> I think that's the a way out of, I mean, speaking for myself, like if I'm in a bad spot, if I choose to, distract myself as opposed to deal with it it's just going to come back at some point and probably worse than it was before and if you do that for a long time i can only imagine where you would end up um so instead to just kind of confront it and be like okay um what's going on here what's what's the what's the logical explanation of this yeah it's, a, it's another reason why journaling is one of those um i don't even know what to really call it but like nuclear uh, behaviors or something, but through journaling, you you can slowly come to try and understand yourself. And I think understanding yourself can take forever. I'll give you an example. I I really completely agree with what you're saying. There was something I read recently. It was there was a study done, and the participants in the study um, were chosen based on their experience, their own personal experience they had during high school. So obviously, you know, you take like, let's say it's a hundred people and ask them what their experience was in high school. You're going to get a spectrum, right? Like you're inevitably going to get a spectrum, but just for argument's sake, if you split the group up into two halves so that one, one half was people who had a relatively positive experience in high school, like socially, like they had friends, they were socially engaged. Maybe they were on, they were in particular clubs, something like that. Didn't didn't really have problems with their teachers per se. Relatively good experience of high school. The other half of the half of the group is the opposite. Maybe they had trouble going on. Uh, they were bullied. They didn't like their teachers. They weren't interested in the subjects. They weren't involved in any clubs. They weren't socially active. Maybe they had friends, but they had a relatively negative experience of high school. Mm-hmm. Take those two groups, and then you show them footage. Uh, what what happened was they were shown footage of a high school hallway. Uh, during a time like maybe it was recess when there was a lot of activity in the hall, mm-hmm. a lot of social activity, people at their lockers, people walking by. The people who had a relatively positive experience of high school tended to notice all the positive interactions mm-hmm. in that video. Mm-hmm. The people who had a negative experience only noticed the negative interactions. Mm-hmm. And so we are continually shaped by our pasts. Our experience of the present is so shaped by the past sometimes that we actually don't even know how or why. Um, You know, like my perception of my present moment 
seems to be to some extent determined by my own experience in the past my own which was ironically at that time my perception of a present moment right mm -hmm. and so like the processes we have to come to understand ourselves are so huge because i don't know if this is true but i, I feel like i may never come to fully know myself like i i will be forever unpacking things and uncovering things and finding random truths buried in places and um it's it's weird and it's hard but it's also it's humbling you know and it's like it's it's i don't know it's it's kind of part of the reason why i can never really like give another person advice or tell another person they should do something mm -hmm. because fuck man like half the time i don't even know what i should do you know it's like mm -hmm. it's it's such a process for me to come to that conclusion for myself to ever pretend to know what someone else should do or what what is best for someone else it's like dude like i know like even i mean i could use use it as as an example like i i feel like relative to everyone else on the planet i know you very well mm -hmm. but i still don't know you mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. I like, think also so, the fact that, like uh, you said, that like you'll never be able to fully know yourself because if you're unpacking the past and kind of dissecting it and looking through it and understanding yourself better, you are understanding the past better. You're understanding yourself a lot better. But while that's yeah. going on, you're still living, <laughs> and like you're still like you're gonna have to unpack this then later on, and not in a, not in a negative way. It's actually a beautiful <laughs> thing. It's actually like a really we're actually lucky to be able to experience it. Oh, Carl Sagan said we are the universe's way of knowing about itself. I think it's like I think it's so valid uh, that. We take That's the time. Saying, yeah. yeah, we take the time to um, we take the time to check in and un be humble in the approach, knowing that we're never going to be able to fully understand. And then on the topic of advice, I really appreciate you said that because sometimes advice is given and there's no consent first. And it's like, you know, if you're giving someone advice, it should be for a good thing. It should be to help them, right? To get them out of a negative situation. Almost in a mentorship. Almost in a mentorship role. But at the same time, when it's not wanted, when there's no consent and you're just giving somebody advice, and if, yeah. if what they're doing isn't like super detrimental to, you know, literally the health of someone else or like the environment um, immediately, then maybe you should wait till they ask for the advice. And if they never ask for it, but that's their path of life. And that's the way that's, yeah. that's going to affect them. You, you giving it to them is you thinking, assuming that you know them so well and their situation and how you would act in it because you come from this situation in this life. It's almost really a, a closed-minded thing to do. And I've given advice before and after I've given it, I've been like, well, who am I to, if it wasn't asked, I'm like, who am I to give this person advice? Because what do I know about it? Now, if someone asked me what I would, what I would do in their situation, that's a different story. And they're looking for a little bit of guidance and help and that's fine. But to just immediately give advice, it's almost assuming that you know what's best for the person when in reality you really don't you're still figuring out yourself yeah 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 for sure um yeah cool so something we didn't talk about at all um is what happens when you okay so we go to implement a new habit or we go to uh change our identities in some way we take on a new aspect of our identities that we previously we didn't we didn't hold but so many of us, and I can speak for myself, you know, and I probably drop on specific examples. I think 
so many of us fail at first. Um, and we either fail in one of two ways. We either fail to execute on the habits that we're trying to implement daily, or the parts of our identity that we're going to change, we actually fail to fully change. We revert back to our old selves. Yeah. Um, now, I think the latter is, I think both are hard to, to pull off in life, mm-hmm. but I think the latter is particularly hard because I, I kind of view identity change as um, through the lens of, you know, that basic symbol of death and rebirth. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm going to change myself fundamentally on a level so that I can go out into the world and say, hey, this is my new identity. Some old part of my identity has to first die. Yes. Um, And that can be painful. And Mm -hmm. it can actually be easier talking about the path of least resistance to revert Mm -hmm. back to that old identity. Now we know it's not serving us. We know there's a potentially better version of ourselves out there in the world. Mm -hmm. It's almost, this is the story of the tragic hero. Mm -hmm. The tragic hero at the end of the story chooses not to change. Mm-hmm. Um, they they stick with the same old habits that could potentially be killing them, could potentially yeah. be ruining their lives, um, you know. And so, it's an important topic when we come to habits because it's like it's it's the true. I think it's the true. Like you know, it's the real. There's a, a great book that you would just you would love uh, called um, Barney's Version by Mordecai Richler about yeah, it's a tragic yeah. hero and it's just okay. it's phenomenal. a guy who just refuses to change even though his ways are are just not not good uh but it's just a, a beautiful story and it's so true and i think that i mean kirk cobain i miss the comfort in being sad i mean there's there is uh, when you know something you and your life an identity that you associated with for so long it becomes comfortable to slip back into it and trying to change it can be very difficult because like you said you you, already have the old to die <laughs> The old you has to die. Yeah. And if you look back, I mean, if you look back at, you can only look at yourself really in a lot of ways. You can look at other people too. Transform. That's why I think humans love transformation stories so much. The person who was 350 pounds, but is now a 170 pound weightlifter or the person who was a homeless drug addict who now has a doctor in psychology. Um, those stories are so attractive to us because we know that it's possible, but we yeah. also know the difficulty that goes into it. And, and, and what we don't actually fully know unless we've actually tried to do it ourselves. Like if we've tried to transform ourselves, it's really hard for the brain to see the mind to see um, transformation, I find. And that's why I think physical exercise is really important because you prove yourself wrong when you actually get into shape. If you're like, oh, I don't wit- I don't see change happening because change is so long that you don't really see it. But if you do something yourself, uh, like getting a degree or getting in shape or really it could be anything, as long as you have physical evidence, your mind starts going, oh, there's evidence of change. It's possible. And then it can go further and further. And my foundation was always exercise because I'm stubborn and I needed to like have something that was physical to show me that change is possible. And now looking back, you do actually see physical change in the person and you go, their mind goes, okay, if that's possible, then this could be possible. And it just adds to the evidence. And evidence is really important for us because we need to be able, self-evidence, we need to be able to, that's how we get our beliefs. That's how we, that's how we confirm things in our mind is, is through evidence, whether that evidence is, is really just your own biases pointing towards things and leads you in a really bad direction, which we could get into about like what's going on now 
politically and socially that like why we have such a divide is I think being able to kind of, you know, creating your own evidence or taking evidence that you think is, that is beneficial to you and releasing dopamine when you take it in um, as opposed to kind of looking at things that are, I mean, the beginning of the conversation, we didn't agree on everything that we were saying, but we, I think we gained from that because you go, okay, well, there's all this different evidence. Like it's not just my evidence that I have in this topic. It's also, you know, there's also books published and people who have thought about this for a long time as well, who have an opinion on it. And that can, that can make you a more fluid person, which I think is really helpful. I also think it's helpful. I think it's funny. I saw uh, in a book that on certain, on certain subjects, let's say it's climate change, mm. people, the people who tend to argue their points the hardest on either side, whether it's okay, let's say it's climate change is man-made. People, you know, people are, some people are very passionately, they believe that and they, that's their argument that they've adopted. Mm -hmm. And so people are very um, passionate. <laughs> they they don't think that's that's true at all. They think mm -hmm. it's false, and they are passionate about proving that it's false. The people who are tend to be most vocal or passionate about a particular side of the coin tend to be the people who are also, who are also most well read on the subject. So what's funny sometimes is that when people are debating about these larger objective topics like climate change or whatever it is, capitalism, etc they're very well informed but what they don't realize is that the people who are the people that they are actually uh disagreeing with yeah uh are also as probably well read or well informed and so it's like this idea of evidence is very important because mm -hmm. yeah like we can come to different conclusions about things and both have well researched well uh proven yeah takes on it and the fact that evidence is so easy to come by from all different perspectives online also yeah. makes that whole thing really interesting. But I find what's, what's <clears throat> something that you come, you realize quickly once you get into a conversation with somebody about a certain topic is that either you're having this conversation and it's going back and forth and you're both learning things, you're both maybe agreeing or disagreeing on things. Um, but it's, you're definitely talking to somebody who also is well-read on the subject. But then you sometimes, you, a lot of the time, I feel like you come across people who are really passionate about something, but as soon as you start kind of questioning them on their on this thing that they have a very rigid stance on, very, I believe this, and this is the way things are, and then you start going, okay, you start asking questions, you start to see that they're not even fully that, they're not even that read, well-read on the subject, but yet they've attached an identity to it, maybe because of some form of tribalism, maybe because of form, some form of belief, um, but that can lead you down a path of, you know, well, being wrong, first of all. Like if you, if you have such strong belief in something and all of a sudden you come across somebody who, like, I mean, there's no arguing it. They, they pretty much showed you that your, your belief system didn't pan out in this topic. It's pretty humbling and it's hard when it happens to yourself. It's like, damn it, I thought I knew about this and that's why I had such a strong belief in it. Now, either you have a choice at that point. You can either keep looking into it more and get a more well-rounded view of it and not be so rigid in your ideologies, or you can dig your heels in and be like, no, I still, this is the way I think, and this is the way that it is. And I feel like we see the latter a lot more, at least on the mainstream media, we see the latter. It's like, it's like, um, it's like it's profits off of division. So it's like, it's, we're going to see the people who are digging their heels in um, and sticking with it. And they're not wrong in a lot of what they're saying, but it still is, um, 
a failure to see both sides of the coin, I think, a lot of the time. It is a failure to see both sides of the coin a lot of the time. And it's a dangerous, uh, it's dangerous, man. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm, we're getting off topic a little bit and I don't mind this because this is a very, this is a very juicy topic we can go into, but I do want to come back eventually to this idea of transformation and how hard it is to actually. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we didn't um, even really fully dive deep into habits no, yet, but, but I like, I like where it's going. About- we can talk about this in terms of that though, in, yeah. in relation to that. So um, people, I do think self-identify with, let's just say political beliefs, mm-hmm. um, a particular political truth, right? Because there are, there are many political truths out there about a particular topic, climate change, capitalism, trucker convoy, there's lots of potential truths you could have. Mm-hmm. It's a very complex subject. You can have mm-hmm. many different opinions and multiple opinions, even though they may seem to contradict one another, may have aspects to them that are both true mm-hmm. um, or that make them both true. That's very much now, the case for a lot of things these days because there's a lot of things that represent truth on all sides. Yeah. To your point about recognizing in the moment that you are wrong mm-hmm. and then that that demarcation that sets in in your life. Um, That's very important to note. And I think, you know, I always go back to this book, The Scout Mindset, Mm -hmm. because in The Scout Mindset, um, the the author, uh, Julia Galef, kind of sets up this this idea of there essentially being two um, functionalities a human can have when navigating the world of intellectual ideas. One person can be functioning as a soldier, which is essentially when they've adopted a set of beliefs that they've convinced themselves are true mm-hmm. and are therefore going to defend that set of beliefs against whatever attacks them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in, in, in that case, you get people who, you know, feel one way about a particular subject and are very passionate about it and have self-identified with that subject to the point that if they talk about that subject, they almost feel personally involved. Yeah. So we're no longer talking about an abstract political intellectual thing. Yeah. We're actually, they are emotionally and personally invested in this subject. And that's mm-hmm. so dangerous to do. The other way of approaching this is what, what the author calls the scout mindset. And the scout is simply motivated by truth itself. And so the scout is continuously um, traversing and traversing a world in which they are simply on the search for truth. And once they find truth, they update their map of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you do it that way, you, you, step, you take a step back from the subject you're talking about. Um, and the way I like to think about it is like, if you have two camps of soldiers on a particular subject, you know, um, whatever it is, maybe it's capitalism and you have the right and the left let's just say in very general terms there, you have two camps set up and they're opposing one another and they're in their little tents and they're watching each other with sniper rifles, you know, and mm-hmm. they got, you know, they hate each other and they're calling each other. One side is calling them racist. The other side is calling them whatever it is they call them. I don't know. Um, as a scout, I mean, you could potentially go into both camps. You come mm-hmm. in peace. You're not here for conflict. You're not here to personally engage someone to the point where they are offended or, you know, might make personal accusations about yourself, you are simply looking for truth and you are willing to go into any camp to find it. 
you are willing to cross borders, you are willing to go anywhere, and you are, at the end of the day, um, ultimately willing to update your own map of the world once you find truth. Um, and so how this all comes back to habits and self-identity and change and stuff like that, well, I don't know, actually. Maybe it's easier to just talk, to just go back and well, talk about it. Can I, I think that's got mine. Something's yeah. really interesting. Um, there's something to be said about truth. And if we mm. are going in as in a scout mindset, like you said, as opposed to a soldier mindset, it's really easy to choose what's true in this world. It's really easy to choose something that's true when in reality, like truth is kind of um, like there is obviously truths that are undeniable, of course. But in the con and, and what what's splitting up society are complex discussions. They're really like they're really nuanced and they're really they have a lot of layers to them, so that it's not so easy to pick out a, a solid truth. So I think witness being a scout mindset is also to kind of and I mean correct me if I'm wrong, but is to understand that you might not ever find the truth, but you're you're supposed to be you're supposed to be confronting the argument, not the person. So what it comes down exactly. to is like if, you, if I'm not agreeing with you, I don't want to pick out personal character traits that I have, that have nothing to do with it. Right, or, and in purely logical terms, if you did that, that is a logical fallacy. Um, I think what? a lot of people. It's a, that's actually inherently a logical fallacy. It's false. If you pick out personal aspects of yeah. me, if you say, yeah. "Hey, do you uh, you feel this way because you uh, you have glasses?" Right? It's like, <laughs> well. Um, heard that one before <laughs> yeah so like that that's actually in purely logical terms like in like you know the rules yeah. of argumentation and stuff like that is actually yeah. false like you that's not true mm -hmm. you can't make personal or taking aspects of someone's personality and blowing them up and creating a straw man right again and like being like and kind of like attacking that as opposed to attacking the actual topic itself where it's like no we and even and you can point out character traits we can't, well, you shouldn't point them out, but you, you can recognize character traits in a person that are probably not advantageous in general. And it might not, you might not really respect it. And maybe that's why, like, maybe that's why certain people on the left hate certain people on the right so much is that certain things that they do, uh, besides what they're fighting for or arguing about, whether it's like, you know, vaccination of children or, or, um, you know, freedoms and rights against the mandates. Um, you might not even be fighting against that. You might very well be fighting against what they're, what they're, what they're arguing for. But sometimes you're just arguing against the person and what they associate with because it's foreign to you and you don't like it. And that I'm not saying, I'm not trying to point the finger and be like, that's what's going on everywhere. Because it's not, there is, a, it's, again, it's so, it's complicated. But when that, yeah. that does happen and it happens on a large scale. And it, happens it's on a, it happens on a large scale. Um, yeah. It happens on a large scale. And I can say, I mean, I have, like, trust me, like, I'm not, I'm not approaching this as like a political scientist or something. Like I don't have a lot of data. I just have my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. but, you know, like I live in Ottawa right now and there's a trucker convoy happening, mm -hmm. happening for the past couple of weeks. And I, I see this happening where people against, it's very funny. It's, I, the only reason I bring this up is because it's interesting for me as a human being living in a city, witnessing uh, my own friends through my eyes. Like as I perceive my total friend group, Mm -hmm. become divided mm -hmm. and so i see people who support it i see people against it just to give you an example some common arguments from the people who are against the trucker convoy mm -hmm. is that they're not actually dealing with the argumentation or the what you might call like the philosophical underpinning of the convoy itself mm -hmm. they're dealing with the truckers or the people who support the truckers and oftentimes you know you see things like oh well they're just a bunch of racists and mm -hmm. 
if you were going to stand next to someone holding a Nazi flag, you yourself are a Nazi. They say all these kind of personal accusations against people, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's becoming it's becoming very widespread. And again, the only reason why I bring this up is because it, it happens to be something that's very real in my life right mm-hmm. now. Um, and that happens on both sides of the fence. Somebody wearing a mask, on fence, somebody yeah. on the side of the truck compliment, like you associate you wearing a mask with having all these other political ideologies or all these yeah. other beliefs where it's like, well, really they're just wearing a mask. Now they could associate with all those other ideologies and things that you don't agree with. But if you're just basing it off of image or off of one action. But it's, it's still incorrect to, to conflate political ideas and personal traits or... Um, it's incorrect and it's dangerous. Yeah. Especially very, on a scale like this. Like, I mean, we're, 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 we're definitely in conflict and um, it's it's funny because if you have if you have a viewpoint that's uh, if you're with a certain group and you associate with that group and you're kind of making inflammatory remarks about another group, but then all of a sudden your group does something that's you know is wrong, you still might do it anyway. And a lot actually a lot of uh, psych- psychological experiments show that actually eighty five percent of the time it's better not better but it's more likely that you're gonna be wrong with the group than right by yourself. Like even if you have people, I think they, there was a study. Um, where there was like a, a group of people in a room and a lot of them were actors and they brought in one person to test, but the person didn't know yeah. that they were actors and they were yeah. showing this stuff on a board that was like very logical and true. And then they showed something that was like really obviously false, but then all the people in the room were saying it's true. And the people who were just kind of complying with it or just being like, okay, like that is true because they didn't want to be, they didn't want to be right. Even if they didn't want to be outcasted, even if they're right. Which is, yeah. it's a hard thing to do. I mean, it's, it's um, to, to stand up against your own group, the people that kind of take you in. Happens in social circles all the time. So I don't have any friends. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> uh, no, I just think that if we can kind of reflect on that a little bit and like uh, have a rational conversation, because at the end of the day, we're all trying to live on this planet. No one, no one deserves to, to be treated unfairly. Um, uh, we all just kind of got to get a better, we got to learn to live together as opposed to, you know, creating ripples in society and destroying it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a, it's a very tangly subject because, you know, I mean, there's, there's some people who believe that political division does come down to personality differences, you know, like kind of comes back to what you were saying about, you know, like not necessarily disagreeing with the point, but disagreeing with who you perceive the person to be. Yeah. And um, it's dangerous to do that, but it's also, it might on some level be true because what people think is that, you know, there are certain personality, certain personalities that end up, you know, voting left for more liberal governments. Mm -hmm. And there are certain personalities that end up voting right. And those personalities are actually quite a bit different. Um, And so it's like, we all know what it's like to communicate with people who seem to have similar personalities as ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? We all know how easy that can be. Um, How do you communicate with someone who's very different than yourself? Now, I don't feel like I personally have problems doing that, but coming back to this idea that, you know, even with loved ones, you're only when guessing what they're thinking or, you know, what their motivations are, you're only right about 35% of the time. Mm-hmm. So how right are you going to be when it comes to someone who's vastly different than you? Probably not. You're, you're going to be wrong way more than you're right. 
And I think what's happening right now in society is that we are falsely attributing thoughts and motivations to people who are different than us and using those falsely um, uh, perceived motivations as evidence to suggest that people are a certain way. This person is racist because X, Y, and Z, when in reality, that person might not be racist at all. They might be, I'm using racist as an example in the context of the trucker convoy, mm-hmm. but um, you know, like you, you might say something about someone, and, but your, your actual perception of them is so off the mark in the first yeah. place. Like you can't even ma- really make a personal accusation. That's true. And also sometimes we choose to ignore it too. So to kind of like hide the, um, the fact that you only know 35% of the, of the individual, like maybe you don't want to know, like you ever ask them any questions, like, you one, get a right? response and it's like, you're almost like, whoa, like this is not what I expected from this person. Do I want to investigate this further and dissect it? Or do I just want to, you know, be ignorant to it and just like kind of walk away? I think we all choose both at times. Yeah. I think we both choose both at times as well. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny, man. We could go into a whole other podcast right now just about um, who, how we perceive identities nowadays. Because I think social media, uh, this will be the last thing I'll say about this and we'll try and get back to habits. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, as we're all becoming more dialed in and plugged into social media, it's almost like our perception of those around us kind of become like memified in a sense, mm-hmm. right? Like if you're, let's just say, for example, you you are in a particular tribe or a particular herd mm-hmm. and therefore your social media feed is completely filled with posts by those of your herd. Mm-hmm. And some subset of that herd is are posting about the other herd, mm-hmm. a herd that disagrees with you, mm-hmm. that threatens you. You're kind of like, for lack of a better word, like creating a meme or creating like a, a false digitized but easily communicable version of that herd we're being reductionist we're putting a pretty bow on it and slapping a label on it and putting it aside instead of actually investigating which is a lot more difficult and and, and investigating in real life like yeah. actually crossing the border to the other side saying who are these people who believe exactly. this and having a conversation with them yeah. you're not doing that at all you're just having a conversation among yourselves about other people that's what good journalism is, is being able to kind of cross over that side and be able to understand the person as opposed to just the, I think it's funny because it's almost contradicting a little bit, and, but it still makes sense that like, you don't want to attack the person, you want to attack the argument, or maybe not even attack the right word, but you want to approach the argument as, as opposed to approaching the personality. But at the same time, you still want to get to know the person, just not use mm-hmm. that against their argument, so to speak. Um, because if they feel really strongly about a certain topic, then they should be able to have that. And you should be able to kind of separate that from the personality to just to just kind of tap into that. Um, yeah. So yeah, a good, a good way to kind of be able to communicate would be able to understand instead of just trying to, because it's so much easier to reduce um, an individual down to a meme. And with the internet, it's just helping us do that so much, so much faster and just kind of not regard the person at all. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, is there anything you want to say about the difficulty uh, and you, you can talk about this in relationship to what we're talking about right now with like politics and stuff and like her, her uh, like tr- tribal identities and things like this. But um, is there anything you want to talk about when it comes to the difficulty in actually implementing new habits and actually going about identity change? Yeah, like, for sure. 
Yeah. Well, it's what the book was so important about. It's just like, there's more often than not when you're trying to do a new habit that you know is going to be beneficial in time. There's so many hurdles. Like there's so many like moments where you don't want to do it. Like you just don't want to go do it. You'd rather do something else. Or even maybe you're just like, you're questioning your pursuit. Like, why are you doing it? And a lot of existential questions can come up. But what I think is so important about the book is the law of behavior change. So the, to make it, to make it obvious, to make your, to make your, um, the new habit obvious, um, to make it attractive, uh, to make it easy and to make it satisfying. And if you can do, and the, the inverse for trying to break a bad habit, if you can do that, you're more likely to continue with that habit. And if that habit is good for you and good for the people around you, you should stick with it because ultimately the outcome is going to be beneficial. And I just don't, I just see it so often with myself and with others that we pick up a really important habit, whether it's reading more, journaling, um, exercising, eating healthy, and then we drop it as soon as life gets in the way. And whether we like it or not, life is going to get in the way of every single habit we have. And we're going to find reasons to stop doing it. But adopt practices that help you to understand the reasons why you don't want to do those habits to begin with, like the good habits, the reasons why you're not going to do it is because of, it's an evolutionary standpoint. Like we weren't wired to live in this, to live in this modern world or not. Our brains are wired to, to live in a, in a world that was far from what we are experiencing now. We're doing okay because we're adapting because that's how humans have survived for so long and got to where we are because we're so good at adapting. So we just need to continue to adapt. And if we adapt in a way that leads to personal growth and not to focus too much on the individual, like you should be doing it in a pursuit that helps out the ones around you as well, makes you a better person. I think, I think that after doing that for a certain amount of time, at the beginning, it's, you're going to probably white knuckle it. A new habit's going to be white knuckled. And that's why you have certain tricks that people use. Some people will take like two jars, one filled with marbles and one empty. And every time you do the habit, you put one of the marbles in the other jar. So you're actually seeing progress. Cause if you start working out, you're not going to see pro you're just going to be sore and you're going to, I use the analogy of working out cause it's so easy, but you're just going to be sore. You're not going to, you're not going to see yourself getting in better shape. It's probably going to hurt you more than it actually makes you feel good at first. Um, so maybe finding something to get through those first initial stages of a new habit where you're not really seeing any progress, but you're still doing the reps. And over time, you do start seeing progress. You do start seeing the results. If you're reading more and you are able to articulate yourself better in a conversation, you're more sagacious um, in your approach to, you know, viewing the world around you, then you no longer need the marbles because you are the evidence. So it just takes a bit of time to, to, to show yourself that you are the evidence of your hard work. But once you do start seeing it, once you start having progress in your life and identity change, then actually doing the behavior becomes like second nature because no longer is it separated from the individual. It is the individual. You are now the person who can write and read and, and exercise and eat a healthy lifestyle. And when you don't do those things, when you do kind of fall off and don't stick to those habits, 
you, you have a choice. You can either create a new habit of not doing those things and become the individual who doesn't do those things, or you can stick with it and remain the person that you already are. And that I think is just getting past that initial point of not seeing results because it's a lagging effect of habits that is so crucial to understand that you will see the results of, of positive habits in time and you will see the results of negative habits in time. So understand that in the moment, bring the long-term into the short-term, give yourself rewards, give yourself uh, visual cues that you are doing something that is beneficial or not doing something that is detrimental. Yeah, very, very cool. Um, yeah, so we'll always kind of kind of begin with the end in mind to some extent, right? Like, well, that's the goal oriented oriented mindset, and I think the pro the the process oriented mindset is more beneficial. But maybe you need to come up with a goal first to get you motivated. Just initially, I think well, that's I think what 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 I meant by that is like when you're talking about you know seeing change observing change within yourself for example and then mm. recognize or even before you see change recognizing that you will see change mm -hmm. beginning with the end in mind the end is change mm -hmm. right change will occur sustained change yeah sustained change will occur you mm -hmm. just have to kind of trust the process in the beginning begin with a growth mindset begin with the end in mind begin with the idea that you will change 100 percent. and i think i mean a good analogy of that is um you want to have a clean room the objective is to have a clean room. Your room's a fucking mess. Get banana peels, tea bags everywhere. And uh, you're like, okay, I need to have a clean room. Well, you can get the motivation. James Cleary uses this analogy, so I'm stealing it from him. But you can get the motivation to clean your room. And you're going to have a clean room. You can spend an hour at it, and your room's going to be nice and clean and tidy at the end. But if you don't maintain the practice of being uh, having cleanliness in your life, then your room's just going to be a mess again in a week. And it's going to continue that way. But if you, ad if you adopt a process of being a clean person and having a habit of cleaning your room every other day or every day, then you now will continuously have a clean room. And that just, that just goes outside of in everything else you do. It's like, if you really want to win it, get run a marathon, then you can, you can use willpower to win that run that marathon. But then once you're done running the marathon, are you going to be a runner afterwards? Remain healthy, have a healthy relationship with running, be active. If you're going to, if you want to get a degree, are you just going to finish your degree and that be it? You know what I mean? Is there, or are you going to then go on and do something else? Like it's, it's adopting, it's understanding and, and appreciating the process, which comes along with boredom, which comes along with failure, comes along with success. Uh, just all the, all the colors. Yeah. The, the process really, really is huge. And mm -hmm. I think in terms of that analogy, when it comes to running a marathon, like it's so important to remember that like at, with athletics and things of that nature that really physically tax um, the human body you have you only have a certain number of marathons in you right presumably mm -hmm. you have a certain number of kilometers that you can run and I think you know keeping that in mind is is important because if you if you set out with the goal simply to be run a marathon um, like you could get there but the methods by which you choose to get there could write you off months after, right? Like you might not even get to the marathon if you don't go about it the right way. Well, you, so, yeah, definitely. Sorry. So you, you want, you want to run, if you know that you want to run for the rest of your life, if that's the goal, mm -hmm. then you're going to approach that first marathon 
in a much healthier and sustainable way. And that goes back to once you start actually doing the habits and the behaviors, the shallow stuff will float to the surface and fall away. And the more meaningful things will actually come up and stay there. And you'll actually end up having this purpose because at first the goal might be to, to run a marathon. By the time you run the marathon, hopefully you've learned enough to go, actually, that's not the goal. The goal is to be a runner. The goal is to be able to run and sustain a healthy lifestyle. That's the more meaningful goal. And then the shallow goal, or maybe it's not shallow, but the, the goal that has less is less valid is going to just fall away because it's it's really comes down to what's if you want to start a business that's honorable and like helps out the environment and helps people around you. But initially you're like, I just want to start a business and make some money and have some capital. It's not a bad thing to have that pursuit in mind at the beginning. It's really not. Anything that gets you to do the work is important. But by the time you get the business and it's it's doing well, if you get that far, maybe new, the new meaning, the more meaningful aspects of the business come into play. Maybe not, but then that's the tragic hero story. I mean, if you don't, if you don't end up seeing your own faults and hopefully, you know, kind of working through them and and get getting things that are more, um, doing things that are almost objectively better for yourself and for people around you, then yeah. you, you kind of didn't really do what you set out. Well, maybe you did do what you set out to do in the first place, but it wasn't a super honorable pursuit, but I think a lot of the time we do end up leading. I think anybody who's made it really far in the world, who has been really successful, whenever you watch their success stories, you can see this process of like the arrogant individual who starts off really just like balls to the wall, get the thing done, get there, going through failing, succeeding, failing, succeeding, just movement through time and through years. And by the end of it, you're, li- you're listening to this person talk and they're humble. They know what's important. You can't really argue with their points if they're like, if they're at the top of their game and they're, and they're a bit older and they've been through a lot. Of course you can at times there's individuals who don't, but a lot of the time I find that it's more well-rounded individual by by the time it's all said and done because they've all the shallow things that they've worked towards slip away and they understand meaning a little more. It seems like, and that's what's happened with me is that I've pursued things that were um, and still pursue things that are probably not super um, like uh, attractive or maybe they're attractive in my mind, but they're not. Um, I've realized I didn't have as much meaning as I thought they would once I get them. And I realized what does have meaning, which is still important that I gain the skill to do it. But now I can kind of pursue the more meaningful path. And that probably will happen again. It will happen. It will continue to happen for the rest of my life. I mean, there's so many chapters involved in, um, like you said, it's, it's continuing to play the game um, and to understand the game and just get, not to say life is a game, but there is. Um, you can view your, well, I actually, well, no, go on. Sorry. Well, you can view your, how you did Like if you look back at your last five years of your life, you can view it with happiness or you can view it with grief. You can view it with a lot of different emotion. Um, yeah. But if you, if you take the honorable route and you really do put the work in uh, as much as you can, we're humans, we slip, but you can like look back and be like, that was great. Use that as a template to go forward and just make it better. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, not to pick the thing I was going to say, there was not, I actually don't necessarily think there's anything wrong in, with viewing life as a game. Ultimately, I think we all have experiences and moments in our lives where it feels very much more real than a game. Uh, and we can forget, we can kind of forget that, but um, many aspects of our lives are kind of like little mini games. And what I'm trying to say here is that the important thing to remember, I think, is to like, to ultimately play, to play in life and to have 
if you can find domains in which you can play in and try to play within every domain you're in, like if you can do that, um, obviously it might not be possible in a, in a lot of contexts or it might not be appropriate in a lot of contexts, but if you can remember ultimately that you're, you're playing something and when we think about play, we think about, you know, kind of discovery, creating, um, you know, in being improvisatory, being rooted in the present moment, you know, not getting too bogged down in what you need to do right now to fulfill a particular want you might have in the future, because that might, that want might disappear. Mm. Like, how are you, how are you manifesting yourself in the present moment in relationship to your environment, other people, and ultimately what it is you're doing. And if you can have a playful mentality or to approach these different things in a playful manner, mm -hmm. it might be more enjoyable and you might end up creating something that you wouldn't have otherwise. I completely agree. Um, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say something else there. Um, yeah, what you're talking about there with the tragic hero thing, it's like, there's an idea I'm going to teach in the course that comes from an author called Will Storr. And it's essentially his idea of the sacred flaw. Okay. And so when, when we were thinking about human beings and ultimately this, the, the humans that we end up telling stories about, the parts of those people that end up changing are actually the parts of themselves that they hold most sacred. Mm. And so you can ask yourself, it is interesting. And because what's one of the reasons why it's interesting is because at the outset, what we hold most sacred is probably going to be a unanimously positive thing. Can I just Within add something to that? Do you think also it's what we hold most sacred, but at the same time, it's also what like, if we let ourselves be taken in by consumerism, it's not really sacred to us, but it's just like an urge. Like if, if I mean, people who eat really poorly and, and um, live really an unhealthy life. Do you think it's just that they're sticking with they're sticking with a certain identity because it's sacred, but also the fact that it's like we're subject subjected to like really negative things intentionally. Uh, what do you mean exactly? Can you give so, me more Yeah. So um, marketing, uh, social media, junk food, um, pornography is a lot of money in it. So it's, it's designed to attract a person and make them do an act or a behavior continuously throughout time so they can continuously mm -hmm. make money off of it. So you're really a victim to, to the market um, if you don't recognize it and able to step back from it. So we don't change our identity because it's sacred. Like there's, a, uh, there's things that are really sacred to us stick with us. And it's really hard to change. That could be, I think, good or bad because we might hold things sacred that really might not have a whole lot of benefit to them. Does that, is, is that kind of relate to this? It does, well? it does relate. I think, I think it is definitely possible that someone would hold those things sacred. Like, you know, you could justify, um, I don't know, like someone might view their social media use as being sacred or something like this. Um, and those two things can be linked if that's, if that's what you mean. Mm -hmm. I guess not, but maybe not hold them sacred. I don't think they would, most people would use to choo uh, choose to use those words, but it might mm -hmm. end up being expressed that way. It's like, it's, 
if you're doing something constantly, it almost oh, seems like it's really important to you. You know what I mean? But in reality, yeah. obviously it isn't that important. It's just offering substance. Yes. No, that is, that is, I do think that's right. I think what you're talking about is similar to the idea of people who are non-religious adopting mm-hmm. other intellectual uh, pursuits mm-hmm. as the, uh, like pursuing those as though they are kind of religious in sure. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's similar to that. Um, but it could also be something as simple as like a, a belief you have about yourself. Mm. Um, you know, like in the story of Eli Manning, like <laughs> maybe Eli Manning has, before he can ever even get to the New York Giants training camp, maybe he has to dissolve a sacred belief about himself in which he is the fastest uh, running back of all time. And then maybe something, maybe that's a sacred belief he, he holds. He's, he's the fastest running back. He, can't, he cannot be fucked with on his high school team. Like um, he, he is just, running backs run fast, right? Like, well, yeah, running backs would be, yeah, they, they, they typically they should be able to run fast and avoid being tackled with a ball. Totally different position. Okay, yeah. than quarterback. Okay. So maybe he's the fastest sprinter, right? Okay. He thinks he's a running back. Um, and he holds that belief sacred to himself. He acts out into the world that he is the fastest running back. And then something in his life happens that fundamentally challenges that sacred belief. Maybe he's motorcycling one day and he blows out his knee in an accident. He can no longer sprint. He no longer uh, just explode with speed. He has to change his game. He has to change his identity. He has to go through that fundamental character change from holding that sacred belief of I'm the fastest running back of all time mm-hmm. to allowing that to die and adopting a new belief. <laughs> and what does that new belief be? Well, in, in this hypothetical fictional version of Eli Manning, he becomes a quarterback. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying. It could yeah. be something like that, right? It yeah. could be like... Well, it's probably happened to you in your life before. I'm imagining it has. You, your, your beliefs and what you stand for was challenged probably at some point and all of a sudden you have to switch. You're like, oh, I have a choice here. Yeah, I think oftentimes it's um, the the sacred belief that we end up needing to change or potentially needing to change or never changing. Yeah, um, is oftentimes in relationship to other people, right? Because like mm-hmm. we are social creatures and we are bound by our social interrelationships. Um, and you know, calling yourself the fastest running back is itself a relative claim you are faster than all of the other running backs, Yeah. Um, right? And so, um, and so, yeah, the sacred belief is kind of, it, it sets us up in a social context as well as a, like an individual. I think it's, I think it's immensely important for when those things happen because they're going to happen inevitably. You're going to have your sacred beliefs challenged and maybe proved wrong, or at least you can't argue it anymore. Yeah. Is to to then move from there. I mean, I used to. I was. I've always been so goal oriented. Like just like, I I want this outcome. I'm going to get it this way. But I've been so avoidant of the process in certain occasions that I never got the goal. Never achieved it. Now there's circumstances where I have. I've really wanted something and I went out and I got it. But when I look back at those things that I have obtained the process was so much more important. I had to work really hard to get it. And instead of kind of 
And then there's been things that I've wanted in life or expected or thought the way the world worked and then was proved wrong completely. The reality slapped me in the face. I'm like, this is not how the world works. And you got to now recognize that it's not that instead of sticking, digging your heels in and sticking like, no, this is the way the world works. It's just that one. It's just that one example of why it didn't. It's like, well, that one example is just one potential example. There could be many more. Again, it's not that your whole view of the world is wrong, but you're, but like, there's something that there's more you need to take into account. And I think having these like sacred, I think it's actually pretty wise to try not to have too many sacred beliefs, if any, I don't, I don't, I don't have like a, I don't have like a rigid standpoint on this. I don't know. I haven't really thought about it a whole lot, but I heard an analogy about uh, belief believers versus seekers. And I think I told you this, but it was like, uh, you know, a believer kind of has their, their boat tied to the shore. Like they're there and they're tied to the shore with their beliefs. And even if they do sometimes occasionally seek out more truths, um, but still stick with their beliefs, it's like they're paddling the boat, but not moving anywhere. So it's like, we, you know, you want to learn and see some more, but you're still kind of stuck to your beliefs because you're not letting it go. Mm-hmm. A seeker would be somebody who unties the boat and starts to sail because now all of a sudden you're able to view things in the world without having a set of beliefs to associate everything with. So let's just say, I don't want to like tie religion. Well, this to is it. almost like the scout and the soldier. Yeah, I think so. I think so for sure. And, and it was a, it was a, um, it was almost like a guru teacher who was talking about that. It was a, a sad guru. Okay, yeah. I think, I think that analogy is, I think it's closer to the scout and the soldier analogy. I think in this context, what I mean by sacred belief is actually something that you you're not necessarily using it to find truths that challenge your belief, mm-hmm. but you are using it to act in the world. So for example, the sacred belief that I am the fastest running back mm-hmm. gets me to football practice. It yep. gets me sprinting. It gets me lifting weights. Like it, it, it sees me through all these activities and all these social engagements and all these behaviors. It happens. Um, it manifests itself on a daily level. Yep. Um, now you could say, well, in all those contexts, you're not really seeking out new truths. You're not really looking for someone to challenge this belief. And I, I do think that is true as well, but it's not like a stagnant belief that kind of anchors you in time and space mm-hmm. uh, immobile. It actually gets you moving. If anything, it's going to get you moving to just further prove to yourself that that thing is true. It's almost like a stoic approach too, because you have like, you're really not entitled to anything. Um, you have little control over most things in your life. So kind of pursuing things, you know, from a kind of scout mindset, more of a stoic mindset, I think can be really helpful right now where, where there's just, there's just so much, you know, claimed certainty in the world that people, we think we're smarter than we actually are. And that's really a big part of our downfall is that like, we assume that we're so smart that we don't need to learn anything. But yet if we well, that could be a sacred belief itself, right? That could be a sacred belief itself, but I think it's less I think it can be kind of harmful to be tied into belief systems. And then because you're not leaving a lot of space to to kind of have a wider view of the world. And I'm speaking from like experience in the sense that like if I when I do uh, my certain beliefs that I hold on to, my biases that I have, uh, my conscious biases or 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 my subconscious biases, I guess, would be that it's gonna. It's not gonna enable me to see the world in a certain way. Like if a, if you're if you're a person who kind of is is just um, if you're like a uh, a nihilist and you believe there's no meaning in the world, then why why are you going to um, why are you going to seek out other things if there's no meaning in anything? That's an extreme approach, but I see it. Like I actually see people who are so so upset and so just like lack of meaning in a lot of things, and in world in life in general that 
it's actually going to hinder their performance and what they can do. And I believe that you know, all people have amazing potential to do things that are well beyond what I can do. Like their set of skills will be way more than mine and vice versa. Like we all have different things to add to this, to this world. Um, but if you kind of, kind of sacred uh, nihilism that prevents them from actually yeah. pursuing. Them. I chose nihilism because it was like almost like hyperbolic, but like at the same time, anything that's like ties you to a certain ties you to a certain understanding of the world. Like this is, this is the way things work. And just like kind of sticking with that can be, can stop mm. you from experiencing a lot of different other things. A lot of, a lot of the other flavors of life that might actually change your opinion and maybe change the way you view the world and uh, have not changed it, but allow you to kind of see things a full scope of the a full scope of the world as opposed to just your, your, your version. That's why I thought Bonnie, Bernie's version was such a good book by Mordecai Richler. The taint, the name was said at all is his version of how the world works. And he right. stuck with that to the very end and it wasn't a very happy ending. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's very true. Like, I think it's it's true in that example of nihilism. It, it, like, you can be the kind of nihilist that, um, you know, that belief just kind of overtakes your entire <clears throat> entire life, your entire behavior. Maybe you act out that philosophy. It's not just something theoretical. It's something that sees itself in your behaviors. Yeah. Um, but uh, it can be it it can be true in other ways as well, uh, with uh, with other ideas. Um, maybe like you're religious in a particular way and you know you you act out as a set of beliefs that limit your experience in the world um what was i gonna say but yeah i think like i haven't i haven't read barney's version but i imagine that that is a good analogy because tying this tying the sacred belief back into identity change in relation to habits um, we're talking about building new identities, you know, like becoming the runner. Mm-hmm. Well, and we're also talking about, okay, in order to adopt a new identity, kind of like a previously held identity has to die. Mm-hmm. And I think like some of those previously held identities can be, can themselves be sacred beliefs. Like, yeah. I don't know what Barney's was in Barney's version, but I don't know, like maybe, um, maybe I, I want to be, I want to be fit, but um, uh, my sacred belief at the outset is like, I can eat, I can eat whatever. Here's maybe a good analogy. Maybe I like, I'm an ectomorph and it's, I don't know. Like, I guess it's, it's, I think if I, maybe because of that, I could have the assumption. This is not something I, I, I believe at all, but I could potentially say, my metabolism is so good. I'm going to eat whatever I want for the rest of my life. I'll always be skinny. Mm-hmm. Right. That's my sacred belief. And it appears to be true until I turn 35 or 40 mm-hmm. or whatever it is. At, mm-hmm. some, at a certain point, my metabolism breaks down mm-hmm. and I start throwing on weight. And now that sacred belief I had, that identity I had, the identity of I'm an ectomorph and therefore mm-hmm. forever skinny, whatever. Um, and the sacred belief of I can eat whatever I want, my metabolism will handle it, is now beginning to prove itself false. 100%. And so I need to, I need to, do you understand what I'm saying? So that yeah, sacred totally. belief now has to be, it's, begin, it's becoming challenged more and more every day as the evidence accrues and proves it false. But now I need to actually not just change my habits, but change my identity, change my fundamental there's changed my sacred belief about who I actually am. I am not forever skinny and I'm not 
always going to be that. I need to actually, I don't know, do whatever it is I need to do to change or not change. Yeah, I totally get you. I'm going to, I really want to add to that. And I think we probably guess we got to close it up soon. Um, So in regard to like falling apart of sacred beliefs, that can happen at like any age. And I think when you see someone go through like a midlife crisis where they're like doing something for so many years and all of a sudden they're like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? I only have so much time left and I've spent it doing this. That can happen when you're like 20, that can happen when you're 30, can happen when you're 40, can happen when you're, it can happen at any time. And let's talk about um, <clears throat> with people who are, they might actually be fairly skilled. They might actually have some habits down pat. They might be doing fairly well in a particular domain. Yeah. And yet are entirely lost. And you're right. That can happen at any, at any age. hundred percent. And like when, when it does, I think it's important to kind of, um, we got to take a step back and assess the overwhelm, the overwhelming feelings that come along with that. And people find them, if you find yourself, and especially right now, we're like, it's not simple. We live in a very abstract world. Like, like we're talking about earlier, you work for a week, you get paid two weeks later, you know, you, you study for four years, you get a degree four years after that kind of thing. You eat bad food, you put on weight a year later, vice versa. Um, Next day. Bring, <laughs> bring, bring things back into like, uh, have a long-term mind, understand the long-term effects of things and uh, kind of try and work towards uh, like, it's something that we're all going to be continuously trying to get better at to work towards understanding the future a little better, not fixating on it and trying to be, always living you gotta live in the present moment but what you do in the present moment is going to affect you in the future good or bad and other people so you know taking a step back and and um uh, doing a little self-work and uh atomic habits doing like some <clears throat> small things every day or have a routine where you're doing it four or five times a week uh, this can be automated too like James Clear talks about automating some of the, like take some of the work off yourself. Like if you want to do five things in the run of a week, X amount of times a week, um, like reading or exercising or um, playing music, then you should, you know, get away, like use, a, use an app to track it, um, write down specifically what you want to do and how you're going to get there and then let the app do the work. Um, and also having like an accountability partner um, there's this really cool thing too called a commitment device. It's also known as a Ulysses pack. And essentially what it is, is um, you put something in place in the present. So it will affect your behavior in the future. So if you're feeling motivated right now, then put something in place that's going to make you do it later on. Uh, Victor Hugo, the author of Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, this is mentioned in Atomic Habits. Um, he was supposed to publish a book for his publisher. They said, okay, I want this book in a year. Have it to me. By then year goes by it's not even started the guy's like okay you have six months get me the book in six months and he's like okay so he sets up a commitment device he gets all of his clothes from his house and he gives them to a friend and all he has left is all he has left is like a like a shawl like a robe essentially for his house so he doesn't leave his house for six months and he ends up you know producing the hunchback of notre dame which is like you know a work of art. I haven't read it. But Remember that. Remember that. Yeah. And so it's, and it's called the Ulysses pack because Ulysses uh, um, in uh, the Odyssey, again, I haven't read this either, but you know, he ties himself to the mass of the ship so that he can hear the sirens, but yet doesn't go towards them. Like he's doing something in the present moment so that he doesn't do something negative down the road. 
And I think having things like that in place is really important too. Like understanding that we are going to fluctuate. Our moods or behaviors are going to fluctuate day to day. And you're not going to want, you might want to work out really bad today, but you're not going to work out tomorrow because you're kind of just being, you know, mush. Um, and, but setting something up like, oh, you know, you could do really, you could do really intense things like give all your clothes to a friend so you can't leave the house or like tell the gym that like, you know, I'll pay double for my membership and I'll get, you know, half back if I don't show up on these days kind of thing. Like there is certain commitment devices we can use if you need that, but there's small things too. Like you could just set your life up so that you are more likely to, to do the good habit than you are to do the bad habit. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> the, the Ulysses pact um, is an interesting one. Uh, and it brings up something that I actually kind of wanted to talk about a little bit because we're in this world where we're driven in the story of Ulysses, it's a great, it's a great analogy for kind of like contemporary life because we're so drawn towards, our, our biologies are, are drawn towards things with inherent rewards in them kind of all the time, mm-hmm. um, right with social media and um, pornography you're talking about, um, you know, fast food. Um, we're, we're in an array of potential dopamine spikes mm-hmm. at any given time. And so we're, we're almost by choosing um, to pursue what we might perceive as better versions of ourselves. Oftentimes the habits in place that get us there are not additive habits. It's not, I'm going to add lifting weights to my routine, although mm-hmm. that would be good. It's actually a subtraction habit. It's what can I do like Ulysses to prevent myself from doing this? Mm-hmm. What can I do f- that would prevent myself from checking social media or drinking or buying ice cream or mm-hmm. whatever it is, right? It's like, it's a removal of a thing. And that removal of a thing is itself a habit. Yeah, I think understanding the science of it's important too. Like with the dopamine spike, when it comes to doing habits, the first time you get a reward, um, your dopamine's gonna spike. First time you get the reward, something very new. The second time you go, oh, I'm gonna do this thing to do this thing to get the reward. Well, you're gonna see the cue, which is going to start the, start the habit. And then your craving is going to be spiking, spiking dopamine. And then when you get the reward, you're actually not going to get a spike in dopamine. Your anticipation is going to be higher than the actual receiving of the reward itself. It's the wanting more than the liking, like we talked about in the last podcast. But there's also this really cool shows how um, in his book, it shows how after you've done the habit enough times and you get the reward, there is a spike of dopamine, you know, during the craving process or so the cue, and then the craving dopamine comes. And then let's just say you don't get the reward your dopamine actually dips below a uh, tonic level. And then let's say you get it at late, uh, you get it later, like uh, you get it after the expected time. It really goes up really high because um, you're not anticipating it. So understanding that going into it, that, you know, the reward is not always going to release a lot of dopamine. A lot of the time it shouldn't be the craving right. for it. So or not at all. Like, so it's actually, would you say it's actually your expectation? Right. Cause if I expect anticipation, anticipation yeah of a reward of yeah so yeah expectation would be i guess similar thing but it's anticipation of the reward you're going to be releasing you're going to have a dopamine spike as opposed to getting the reward the second time around right so if you're anticipating a reward and then you don't get the reward your dopamine dopamine drops drops but then if you give it a little bit later when you're not expecting it they did they did tests i guess with like rats and stuff where they're gonna the light goes off the rat presses the button the rat gets a pellet of food um but then rat doesn't get the pellet of food one time and it's dopamine actually goes down and then it goes over well, and give it to your master this, 
is this also why we have to be very careful when we begin attributing external rewards to processes which themselves might already have built-in rewards yeah. like for example let's say your goal is to get fit and you adopt a habit of going to the gym five days a week mm. <clears throat> you're executing on that habit now you could say that habit has inherent rewards like you know you get all these endorphins after working out like working out for me i don't really need to put it to give myself a reward for doing it because the habit itself gives me rewards right but let's say we add in the additional habit of getting a piece of chocolate at the end of working out yeah are we now working out for the piece of chocolate that's so i'm happy you mentioned that because there's two things there's habit stacking and there's temptation bundling two things that james clare talks about in this book habit stacking is taking a current habit and after you do that current habit putting in the new habit so it's habit stacking so like after i current habit then i new habit and then temptation bundling is taking a habit that you like, maybe you don't really want to do, but you know, it's good to do. Um, yeah. And then putting in a new habit, which is, uh, or, or something that's like almost like a reward. So like, if you go do workout, then maybe you do a piece of chocolate after. So, and then also combine the both. So habit stacking and temptation bundling, I think is really important because like, if you want to do something, you should maybe earn it a little bit. And it's so easy just to get things. Like I could just go to the store. I mean, I don't make a lot of money, but I can pretty much buy all the things I want when it comes to like, you know, minor dopamine rushes, food and alcohol <laughs> draws. <laughs> um, but do I deserve those things? Well, I mean, that's a, I guess that's really a deep question, but at the same time, if you can set up your agenda a little bit where it's, if you need, if you need to have something tied to a good habit, then go ahead and do it. As long as it's not going to, I don't think the chocolate with the working out is a good example because you're kind of going against what you're trying to do. So if you're trying to be healthy, eating a Cadbury fucking mini egg after a workout probably isn't the way to go. But maybe if you are trying to uh, um, get fit when every once in a while you put a tempta- uh, like something of reward that would be like, maybe you buy yourself a new jacket or like you, you know what I mean? Like something, something comes out of it. You let yourself do something. That's not, that's not contradicting what you just did. Yeah. 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 Yeah, those two principles are really cool. And I, he didn't come up with, he didn't come up with the habit stacking. I think that was another psychologist, or I think that might be Duhigg or or I'm not or B.F. Skinner. I'm not 100 sure, but he uses it and talks about it in a practical way. Which I don't personally use that strategy. Um, the actual act of doing the thing itself, like feeling good after a workout, uh, is good. And I think I might use it subconsciously at times, but it's not something I write out or or I um or I plan. To like to, to, to stack them or to, to, to put them together in temptation bundles, but I might do it. I think actually now reflecting on it, I probably do it um, subconsciously. Like I'll let myself chill out in the evening and just like kind of do my own thing. If I went to the gym after work. Yeah. Mm, I don't know what you mean. Yeah. I don't, it's not something I'm really conscious to think about either, but now that you say that it's probably also true for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, it's also weird because we were talking about this before and I don't remember if we were talking about it in the last pod or what, but um, like certain, like once you find, it's almost like the Eli Manning thing again, not to just belabor an, an overuse or analogy here, but yeah. um, like once you, find, <laughs> once you find that neat thing that you love doing though, like the, the you know, like the thing that, that really just speaks to you that you love to do like 
doing that thing is so inherently rewarding for yourself. Mm-hmm. Kind of like <clears throat> doing it. And if you if you're able to do it first thing in the morning, like it kind of changes the rest of your day. Yeah. Right? Like the rest of the, your day is changed because you're you yourself have been changed a little bit. Like you don't kind of view the time remaining in the day as time that, oh, I need to do this thing. It's already done. Mm-hmm. Like it's off your shoulders now. And um I don't know if if what I'm describing is a separate thing or if it's kind of tied into that, but Well, no, I think that, I think, I think it's not, I don't think it's a, a separate thing. I think it's completely relatable, but I feel like a lot of the time it doesn't happen right away. So like, you can't tie in feeling good to certain um, habits that you just pick up. Like let's say, let's say you've never lifted a weight in your life, just as working out such an easy analogy. If you've never lifted a weight in your life and you start working out, you're probably not going to immediately feel better. And in fact, you're probably going to immediately feel worse. <laughs> and like, you might get some endorphins, but like, you're going to feel, if you do a solid leg day after never working out, you're not going to sit on the toilet the next day. And like, well, yeah. that's, actually, that's actually an important thing. Although there is kind of like a sick, I find there is a, um, yeah. I'm, trying to, I'm trying to work out a lot more. Um, but I, I mean, like I told you the other day, like I worked out for the first time in a long time. I did a bunch of like stuff. With kettlebell. Mm-hmm. And like, there's like a sick twisted pleasure in, in the pain that comes after. Right. It's like, yeah. it's like, uh, I'm, I'm really, really sore and I'm not able to do things, but I kind of like the pain because it means yeah, but you, I think you also know where you're going with it. Cause you've, you've, it's not like you've never worked out before and had like a streak of, of healthy, uh, working out and like, you know, where you're, how you're going to feel in the end. So maybe there's that a little bit tied into it. Let's just say picking up a new instrument and you've never played an instrument in your life. Um, it's hard for you to do that, to think about this probably. It's hard for me too. Cause I've played instruments for a while. And so, so have you very extensively, um, but, um, you don't know where it's going to take you. So you just go, that's what's so cool about starting new habits. And that's what things that I think uh, is so alluring is that like, if you stick to status quo, you kind of know where you're going. At least you think you do. There's no really unknown because you've been doing it for years and uh, it's, it's going to lead you to a place that you're at right now. Cause you're just going to keep doing the same thing. When you take on a new habit or a, add a new, a new activity to your life, you have no idea where that's going to take you if you stick with it. That's what's so tempting about it. Is it like, oh my God, if I did study guitar four times I, a week, I could be jamming. I, I disagree with that in some way though, because I think that no matter, at least in my experience, and like maybe I'm wrong about this, but you know, in my experience, like no matter how good you get at a particular thing, and I think maybe it might actually be true that the better you get at a particular thing, um, your actual perception of yourself in relationship to that thing changes. And so therefore you see opportunities where before you wouldn't have seen opportunities. Mm-hmm. So if, let's just say you're an absolute beginner guitar player, to use that analogy, like you're, you don't see the, the opportunities you might have as a guitar player that you're going to see when you're an, an intermediate advanced guitar player. And so therefore, and that can continue upwards, right? So oh, yeah. as a as a guitar player, like, or in any particular domain, even as you get better, you can continually be surprised with how that behavior manifests itself in the present moment, because you're kind of continuously going to be seeing new opportunities. 
That is what I'm saying. Like that, but by doing the act, oh, okay. I, maybe it came out wrong, but that was I'm saying by doing the act, you oh, don't okay. know you're you're heading into an unknown because you are literally learning new things all the time. And those, if you get right. to a level, it's an no. But what I'm saying is that that can continue, can continue even though you are. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Well, you well, you're never well. You're I think you're a little bit um, self-absorbed if you think you can't continue to learn something. You know, what I mean, even yeah. the best of the best can get better. You know yeah. what I mean? And uh, so I think that's true. I think that like as as you go along, like there's masters of craft for sure, but there's always <laughs> new places to go. Yeah, for sure. Um, dude, I think I need to end it there. Yeah. Let's go. Is that cool? I gotta go to work. <laughs> What's that? I gotta go to work. Yeah, me too.